Charles Manson. I'm, I'm not kidding. Carl stood me up this morning, and then he was murdered at the flea market. Murdered? Yes, murdered. You said you hated your teacher yesterday, and he was murdered, too. Look, I don't know. Maybe Mom's nuts. That's a cool idea, Misty. Hey, let's make a gore movie about Mom. Better get a TV series. <laughs> hey, can I borrow your mother? My aunt's coming over for dinner, and she's always getting on my nerves. <laughs> my stepfather's an asshole. She could kill him. How about Miss Ackerman? We all hate her. Who's going to be the next victim? No, stop it! It's not funny. Mom might do it. Somebody else might die. I am your mother. It's not like a regular mom. I'm a cool mom. I never should have pushed you out. I suppose that's what mothers do, isn't it? You get the hell away from my daughter. Call me mommy. I'm not exactly maternal. Welcome to Are You My Mother, the podcast that looks at mothers and parents in media for a glimpse into how mother characters inform and sometimes betray the expectation of what it means to be a mother and how we look at mothers in the world. This podcast is a proud part of the Glitterjaw Queer Podcast Collective. If you're looking for other queer media podcasts, check out the full roster of Glitterjaw shows at glitterjaw.com. I'm your host, David Arnold, and in this episode, we're covering suburban mother, community pillar, happy wife, and incidental serial killer, Beverly Sutphin from John Waters' cult classic, Serial Mom. My own sociopathy wouldn't be enough for us to talk about this film and its main character, so I looked through all of my contacts to find the most depraved people I could possibly have come and join me, and I had to settle on relative angels of film podcasting. It's Louie and Gavin, co-hosts of the Mixed Reviews podcast. Friends, welcome to the show. Oh my goodness, thank you. We are angels, I mean, angel and devil. I feel yeah, like we're the yin and yang, you know? Me and Gavin um, fill those roles very neatly, I would say. Don't you think, Gavin? Yeah, Louie, you're very devilish, and I am a complete <laughs> angel. I am a bright, shining pillar of the community, and you um, see, are a monster. <laughs> but, but all that matters is we are both depraved, just like you said. Perfect. Perfect. Exactly. Hey, so the Mixed Reviews has been on, on for almost seven years, and I hope that doesn't hurt you to hear. Uh, oh, the, oh assign- the assignment that you all have given yourselves is significant. You take a topic, a director, an actor, and you cover all of the films that sort of meet the brief, doing deep dives into surrounding interviews, history, and the connection between art and our collective culture. Uh, I wanted to ask you the following as a friend, as a huge fan of mixed reviews, and as a qualified mental health professional, what compelled you in 2017 to start this journey? Oh my goodness, the lore. So, well, first of all, Gavin is like um, the matriarch of podcasting. Um, I I listened to one of Gavin's old shows that like no longer is with us when I lived in San Francisco and uh, I, I it just made me laugh and when I was moving to New York me and Gavin met for the first time um, lol we met via Tumblr <gasps> yeah wow wow old girlies talk about um, depraved good lord I know depraved. The depravity. Um, and You know we met through Tumblr because I use a walker now. No <laughs> um, but yeah, Gavin's, I think you had like two shows on at the time and they both were yes. coming to an end. And we were just talking about like, you were like, I want to do another show. And I think I might have just texted you like this idea of like, oh, you know, we both love movies. We um, actually met in person. We went, we yeah. like, we, we we ended up, funny enough, uh, Louis moved here to work in the same building I worked in. Wow. We yes. For, a big evil megacorp uh, that yes. had many different facets to it and uh, and so louis was like 
are you free for lunch? And I was like, yeah, I have a lunch break coming up. And, and so we literally met a couple blocks down, like by a fountain. And Louis like, I want to start a podcast. That is yeah, so well, cool. I said, like, here's a really good idea. Because you had said you wanted to do in the show. I said, here's an idea. And then you were like, you want to do it with me? And I was like, me? Oh, my God. Um, and yeah, and like, I think it took a couple of like, I wasn't episodes. just going to take the idea and run. <laughs> like, I was like, great. Do you want to be my secretary? Like, <laughs> Evil. Just truly to steal from this poor, yes. innocent, naive little man who had come into your life. I know. And, I was, and, and just come from out of state to I know, like I was, just okay. the San small Francisco, town of San Francisco. Calm down, calm down. Did he did he even speak New York? Yeah, I know. <laughs> um it took us a couple of episodes to figure out like the language, I think, of the show. Um and then also like for us to figure out like what made our show special was like our queerness and like this angle of like we're not just talking about movies, we're bringing our own lenses to it when you know I think Gavin has like a more of a like a, a studied appreciation of movies. I'm more of like the dum dum of the two of us. But also, I think we have this like really great um, appreciation and and um, vision of like uh, the queerness of it all. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, and yeah, we've been doing it for se- like almost seven years now, and um, it's great. I, I I sent our list of uh, all of our episodes out to a potential new guest, and she was like. <laughs> This is crazy of how many episodes you guys have. And I was like, I and you were like, people. clearly you don't listen. You are not a fan. <laughs> wow. Wow. Turn it off. It's it's funny because I was texting Gavin and he mentioned an episode and I was like, oh, I didn't listen to it because it was about um, an actor and I only listen to actresses. No, just kidding. Correct, I don't. Correct, I don't. Correct. But, but, you know, sometimes you just got to like, you got to draw the line because the backlog is huge. Yeah. We know what we know where our bread is buttered, and I think it's so funny now that we, you know, we've uh, for for the first six years essentially, we were biweekly, and now we've moved to monthly just because we we're both like constantly working. I feel like well, and, and it, it these just, bitches like, keep making movies, so now your yes. your homework gets even worse every year. It's yeah. true, um, and uh, but like. I think we used to do more men and it's just very clear that like our audience loves when we talk about the ladies and the actresses. And I, and I like to think that we do it from, uh, you know, a place of love and, and, and understanding that like the industry has been really awful uh, specifically towards women, Mm -hmm. you know, and, Mm -hmm. and people of color and, and anybody who doesn't fit the straight white mailbox. And so I, I think that people really like what we talk about that, but I, I would say like, it's become very clear now that we're monthly. I think our last like six episodes were all just women. <laughs> well, yeah, it's hard because like we, and the caveat is like, we watch as much as we can. That's always yes. been the thing. Like, yeah, we never go in being like, well, we watched everything guys, especially when we were bi-monthly. Um, we watch as much as we can, but like, sometimes we're like, Oh God, do we really have to watch <laughs> all these? Movies? And, and sometimes like, let's take like a Julianne Moore who we love. But that girly, she works. Has she works. Ten thousand movies, like, um, <laughs> and and so like there are some episodes that's like, okay, we're gonna have to work yeah. this yeah. month. Um, but it, yeah, we love doing it. I'm, I'm like, yeah, I saw the Lost World, Jurassic Park when I was twelve. I don't need to rewatch it. Yeah. Like, that's yeah, my like, knowledge for Julia. You know what? Accurate. Totally accurate. <laughs> that that yeah. does not need a rewatch. <laughs> wow, incredible, incredible. I will say that when Gavin was a guest on Gimmicks, 
Um, that's where I first sort of encountered you, Gavin, because uh, I was a big gimmicks listener. And I messaged Gavin and said, where do I get started? Your fucking backlog is humongous. And this was when there was only, I don't know, probably 90 episodes. Um, and you said to start with the Vincent Price episode. And that was a great recommendation. Um, but boy, a, a straight white man, straight white man, um, a, a white man, to be sure. Uh, and you all talked. I loved that episode. It was a great introduction to the series. If anybody's looking for a way to get started on mixed reviews, you can start anywhere, but you could also start with Vincent Price or you could start with John Waters, which is what we're here to talk about today. Say that. Yeah, listen. Um, so on your podcast, you provide mixed reviews. Uh, I, I will embarrassingly admit that it wasn't until I typed these notes that I really clocked that um, because I, too, am a golden retriever and I am prettier <laughs> than I am smart. Um, you look at the sort of least amazing thing that you went through in your research and assign it a one-star review, and then you flip that coin over and assign a five-star review to your best thing. For Pride in 2022, you all covered John Waters and uh, Louis you assigned multiple maniacs as your one-star review. Gavin, yours was Crybaby, but you both selected Serial Mom as your five-star review. We're all too young to have seen this in theaters. Uh, Correct. Or, or Gavin's parents <laughs> like... were very age-inappropriate taking him to a film. Uh, what are your personal histories with the film Serial Mom? Gavin? Oh, yeah. So uh, it's so funny, too, to, to think back. Uh, I have a bad tendency to, like, flush my brain after we do an episode. Sure. Just because, it, especially when we were doing bi-weekly, like, I would need to refill it with as much information about our next subject. So I'm like, I gave Crybaby my one-star review, but I, I'm sure it deserved it. Uh, Crybaby was probably my introduction to um, John Waters. Wow. So it's really, yeah, so it's really funny. Because my, my parents, I was actually just discussing this with a coworker um, who was like, oh, my dad just let me watch anything with, when I was a kid. I guess like we didn't have a lot of rules and i was like maybe it wasn't that you didn't have a lot of rules maybe it was just that your dad wanted to watch this and they didn't care if you were around because that was me and so the vhs of crybaby was so when serial mom came out because i liked crybaby as a kid i was like oh i want to see this other movie and so i think i maybe rented it from local video store mr movie shout out to dead video stores and um (laughs) and they let me rent it even though it was an r-rated movie so uh yeah so i i definitely saw this on vhs many many times Mm -hmm. it taught me pussy willows uh and Uh, yeah queer needs to learn pussy willows everyone they truly (laughs) do Pussy willows, Dottie. Oh <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah. It's, so, so that would that would be mine. My my dad, my dad, like introducing me to John Waters and me being like, oh, this person that I like this weird movie of, like I I will rent this other weird movie. That's and... that, that's so iconic that your dad was the one who introduced you to John Waters. Like fucking cool. Yeah. Um, I I frankly had not seen did not see this movie until our episode. Wow. Um, I. I think a lot about, you know, how uh, certain pop culture things just never penetrated my world, mm-hmm. like, in where I lived. Um, the first movie I think I saw also from John Waters was also Crybaby because of VH1. Um, sure. And, and and yeah, I, but, like, just watching it for this, for our episode, I was just like, it's kind of jarring. Because you don't know where John is going to go. And, like, right off the bat, it's just like... Oh, it is the hard R. Oh, it yeah. is like um, right over the fucking head. Um, it, it, but like in the mouth of uh, a Kathleen Turner, like it's just like everything is so beautiful and so like corrupt. Um, yeah, I, 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 I watched it again before 
this and i'm just like god it's just so good it's just so good yeah um yeah. so yeah i don't have a long history with it but um it's been such a joy you know since uh, my like young teenage years watching crybaby on vh1 i've you know consumed i think if not all most of the john waters oeuvre yeah. and um every time you watch it's just like god what a vision vis- like a visionary like what a what a voice yeah. and it's so special to like um, consume that as um, us normal humans. Hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. Non auteurs being in this like very heady auteur space, which is just so incredible and amazing. That being said, uh, my experience also was by way of my father, but unlike Gavin, whose father was trying to make you queer, I guess. Um, by being like, <laughs> yes. Yes. John Waters. Uh, <laughs> I saw, I saw Rocky Horror when I was six years old because he rented. He's like, I loved going to this wow. movie at midnight. So yes, my dad wow. was like. <laughs> You're queer. Enjoy. I love Amazing. that. I love it. Lean in. Um, my dad, uh, 100% was capital H horny for Kathleen Turner. Um, oh my. And I, I, we watched War of the Roses more than any per, any person I think ever has watched mm. War of the Roses um, because she and she is very very sexy in the film. She but, does the handstand in that movie. That's does, I mean that's one of the most memorable things in the world. She does the she like, does a lot of things well, in that movie. <laughs> yeah, she does do a lot of things in the movie. But but I always think of the handstand in Danny DeVito's office when she like yeah. handstands up and the legs apart. Like, yeah, she also massages his out. dick with her yeah. foot. Like, come on, this this did things to me as a child um, that I think were important <laughs> later in my life. But uh, yeah, this I'm glad that we have a little bit of parent representation. And then, uh, Louis, I'm glad that you sort of bring a, a, a new and fresh adult view to this because I think an adult viewing is a lot different than a kid's viewing of this movie. I think you can put this in front of a preteen, um, and it's. You know, there are things that are going to seep into Gavin and I's brain, but there are things that were very, very subversive that I didn't even notice until rewatching for this. Yeah, totally. I, I, you know, and I remember when I watched Crybaby and uh, I think Pecker on VH1, I was like, I was like, why does this movie feel different? Why is this like being weird? And I was like, there are just some times when you think like, oh, are, can movies be this way? Like, and, and there's, you know. My parents are, you know, like Mexicans who were not watching John Waters movies. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was kind of like your your VH1 was the educator um, and the entryway for uh, these movies. Louis, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump a little bit further down in the notes, but I, I actually listened back to the episode. And one thing that you said that really stood out to me was you made this beautiful allegory between Waters and Miyazaki that mm. um, you felt like you were watching something that you'd never seen anywhere else in the world. And yeah. um, that was such a so poignant and so beautiful that I had to jot it down um, because it is. It, it's like I've never I've never seen a cartoon like this. I've never seen a live action film like this. Is This is so different. Yeah. I, I mean, like the feeling... If you can imagine, you know, it's like late night, you're watching Disney Channel on your own, and suddenly Kiki's delivery service comes on. And it's like, what bonkers. is this? Bonkers. What, what, is, what is this? And then similarly, you're watching VH1 late at night, movies that rock, and uh, <laughs> Crybaby's on. And it's like, I don't understand, because it's not like a musical like other musicals that I had seen. And it's not like a regular comedy, but like, it's kind of funny. I remember like being like, what do they call the boring people? Is it drapes? Drapes. Drapes. Yeah. And I was just like, they're inventing their own language. And it just all made sense to me. But yeah, it, it's the power of art sometimes. It kind of takes you to new places. And it and I just, my little uh, soft brain was like <laughs> being very um, uh, impressed upon by uh, John Waters and Miyazaki. Um, it was great. 
I, I don't want to derail the entire no. episode already because this might be too heady to start, but maybe it'll give you guys something to think about as well, too, um, on the on the other side of that, because it is very different and everything that he does is very different. But I also think that and I've been spending days trying to find a way to put this into the right words. I kind of feel like, especially going back to this and then thinking about where we are now, especially in the United States, like... I feel like John Waters is a little bit of a Cassandra. Yes. Um, I've I've often said that I think the hardest thing to do with parody is to do it in the moment. It's hard to like make fun of the moment you're in when you're in it. And John Waters has um, many times in his career actually been before, <laughs> which I think is really fascinating. Uh, and I was, I was talking to Dan last night and I was like, I was wondering if it be- is because he comes from kind of a conservative straight laced white well-to-do background in a city that is often not thought of as white, mm-hmm. well-to-do, straight-laced. Mm-hmm. And so he could see the turns coming because Serial Mom's 94, and there's a huge turn towards conservatism that we still have not been able to shake in the United States that starts yeah. towards the end of the that decade. And I think that he he's just so able to like really hone in on um, both the things that are like re- like just really deep and interesting and dark and kind of gross about humanity, um, as well as pick up on the outrageous things that are kind of dark and gross about humanity. Um, and so I don't know. I I I found it really fascinating this time, especially watching it. Um, you know, a lot of, and this is a movie that we're not talking about, but like a lot of awards talk this season has been about May, December. Mm. And I think May, December in a similar way is doing a similar thing here, but less in a kind of comedic style, even though I do think May, December is quite funny and you should laugh at it. Uh, But uh, the, but I think that, you know, they're two different tacks of the same coin. And it's just funny that to watch this film that's now effectively 30 years later, that is playing to the same tune that yeah. surreal mom yeah. is uh that might have been way too off the track but I, j- I just always i think about the way that he sees the world and he sees uh you know the the kind of like shiny veneer of conservatism on the outside and the like horrific like the, they're the ones you have to worry about the the rot underneath yeah well and, and gavin we will we will never uh, fault anyone for bringing up uh anything next to Natalie Portman on this podcast. So you're, you're <laughs> right. On, you're right on the money. Um, there are people listening who have not seen serial mom. So by, by way of a very truncated analysis, this is a dark comedy from 1994 directed and written by John Waters. The film explores the life of unassuming upper middle-class housewife, Beverly Sutphin and her family's normal life with one major exception. Beverly is secretly a serial killer. You know, we all got to have a vice. I like She's a like... lot of coffee during the day. <laughs> That really likes to kill people. It's almost identical. It's really very close. Um, Yeah. So it's funny because, uh, and you'll probably both be tired of me and and never want to speak of this again. But uh, I, I, of course, am going to come to this from a psychological viewpoint. I'm going to talk about um, some of the psychology associated with Beverly because she is written as a sociopath. It is clear that Waters either knew a sociopath in his life is a sociopath uh, or did his research or you know why pick one why like <laughs> yeah why not a little bit from all don't three? limit yourself baby you can be whatever yeah. you want 
Uh, again, highly recommend that people check out the Mixed Reviews episode 115 on Waters uh, to avoid going over familiar ground. I will just say that Waters is a unique and surrealist writer, director, and author who has been influential and a critical part of our queer history. So this is a brand new name for you and you're queer. Uh, it's time to do just a little bit of homework uh, into where you came from because this is an important person in our lives. Uh, gentlemen, is there anything else we need to talk about with Waters? I think mostly also like the, the final thing is like, uh, all the things you said, but then also add like a dash of like maybe like an, a helping of like grotesque. Yes, it's like a lot of. Uh, there's a great like opening scene in this movie where she kills a fly, and there's just like blood and guts everywhere from this tiny fly. I'm like, girl, that's not how flies look when you kill them. But like he he exaggerates yep. um um uh, like this this carnality of life and of of bodies. And and the word I'm thinking of for that is provocateur, because especially, you know, this is an era of John Waters where he was like finally as close to the mainstream as he was ever right. going to get. And it's funny that like the, specifically the fly, the story about the fly is they wanted to kill a fly and the ASPCA who has to sign off on your films wouldn't allow them. So it's a special effect. Uh, but you go back to earlier John Waters films and the opening credits of Desperate Living is a cooked rat and it's a rat that they literally cooked and put on yeah. a plate. Yeah. And so like it just goes to show you like the the how his sort of shock had to change with the system and then I think he proved he kind of couldn't stay in that system because right. it just would yeah. you know it would oh, it yeah. wouldn't let him, you know, and so fuck, eventually fuck chickens. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> this um fuck chickens to death. This fly thing is is wild to me. Um that a fly is a protected class. That's um you know what though? Good. I'm glad someone's looking well, out for something. That's why I've never seen you at the marches. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. Uh but true. Also true. I also think that you can't talk about Waters without talking about Baltimore. He set all of his films in Baltimore. He is from Baltimore. The history of Baltimore is fascinating. So without turning this into a historical podcast, I'll just say that Baltimore was a hub of culture on the East Coast until ultimately extreme racial segregation, corruption, and wealth inequality in the city sort of broke apart its its status and its standing um, and made it sort of the city that it's that it's known for today, uh, where there's this this tremendous amount of wealth inequality, increased crime, and fueled white flight into the suburbs. So while the story of Serial Mom, I might argue, could take place in any suburb, I think it's really important that it takes place in Baltimore, where this subversive and evil person is waiting just behind the door of your next door neighbor yeah, yeah i it definitely feels like anywhere usa but the context of all of that because i think correct me if i'm wrong there's like maybe two black people in this movie there are they two. both are very ancillary there's like yeah. one of the trash man yep. guys yep. and then i think like one of the parents who's like kid is not doing well in class yep. again like they have lines but they are not not even supporting they are right they are way out there, Barnaby. And so uh, it's, yeah, I think that context is really important because I th this movie is a lot about like uh, moral failings and like the extremities of that and like the consequences of that, even from like trying to scam your way at the swap meet yeah. to murder, you know? Well, I think that's important because there's a lot of crime in this movie. There yes! is a lot yeah. of crime. And it, part of it is done, and we'll talk about it murder by murder, but in order for you to feel a little less bad that somebody just got, you know, killed, 
But um, there are crimes that are significant. There are crimes that are like really low key. Um, and then there are crimes that are only crimes to Beverly. But they all exist in this sort of idea that, that someone has done wrong. Um, and yeah. these wrongdoers are surfeit in the suburbs. There's so much hypocrisy, yeah. too. Like, and yes. that's, you know, I always forget about when she goes over to her friend's house and it's like noon and she's like, do you want a beer? Yeah. And, it, and it's just like, and, and so it's just like this, you know, every these perfect housewives who like have like this woman is secretly an alcoholic. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, but and even the, like, there's like like the crime. I, I, I forgot at the end where it's like, well, do you recycle? Yes. Yeah. And. And that failing... I don't have room in my kitchen! <laughs> yeah, that failing... Everyone's like, we can't believe her. And it's like, it's about, you know, how we punish people for perceived wrongdoings. Yeah. Um, and how, you know, like you said, Gavin, the hypocrisy. Like, we are ready to fucking take someone to hell and back because they don't recycle. Yeah. But... I mean, her, her trash men literally are the ones that are like, somebody should kill her. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Compared to, you know, this woman who is an actual psycho killer... You know, and it's it's John Waters pointing out, like, we are going after the wrong shit. Why are right. we persecuting gays? Why are we persecuting poor people when we have fucking rich fucks out here who are, right. like, literally pillaging our entire country? I, I know we're going to come back to it, but that's, like, I mean, because it's in the notes, but, like, later on, much later in the film, they go to church and the sermon is, like, capital punishment and you. Yeah. <laughs> the, state, so like, the state already yeah. legalized it. So what's God to say? I mean, just yeah. truly it, on the Jesus nose. never said anything about capital punishment on the cross. And if not, then when would have been a when? good time when? for him to have mentioned it? When? <laughs> so wow. Fun. Wow. Well, let's narrow our focus and talk first about the woman of the hour. It's Beverly Sutphin herself. At first glance, the subject of today's conversation is a portrait of a trad wife. It is Betty Crocker updated for the 1990s. But quickly, we see that just beneath the surface, Beverly has things that get on her nerves and where the character is very different uh, than what she seems is how she reacts to those items. So let's start by talking about the veneer. Where to y'all does the image of her expected dress, behavior, and motherly concern come from? Where is that grounded? It feels like... Um... Trad wife is a very <laughs> descriptive, <laughs> descriptive term. It feels like, you know, there is a perceived, like, how do how does the American family function? And what is the function of the husband? What is the function of the wife, the kids? Um, you know, I, I think one of the first lines she has is like, is that gum? Yeah. And like, and poor Ricky Lake is like, it's sugar free. Um, she, and, and, and even like when the police come to her home, she is like, this is still my home. I'm a white woman. I am in charge here. Yeah. I don't give a fuck who the law is because I am the mother of the house. Um, and it it just, it just feels like Reaganomics um, like put together in this like little perfect Betty Crocker woman. Um, and it's weird because it's also like it's a little bit put into like this religious bubble. But like she is also murdering aside. She is. <laughs> She is putting, she has a lot of pleasure in, like, terrorizing the women of the neighborhood, um, which is fucking hilarious, you know? Like, cocksucker, pussy willow, like, it's so good. It's almost like she can't stand their veneer, and and obviously, like, it's a problem with her own. I do think it's really interesting, and I I don't want to talk about too much, because obviously, Kathleen Turner and Beverly Sutton, like, 
Beverly Sutton's a fictional character. Right. Kathleen Turner is not. Um, but I, I do think it's really funny that I was reading a Vulture interview with her from a couple of years ago where she mentioned, like, she didn't grow up with these television examples because she didn't grow up in the U.S. She was born in Missouri, but her parents were, her father worked for the Foreign Service. Mm-hmm. Her grandfather was literally a Methodist missionary. Uh, and she grew up in uh, lots of foreign countries, Canada, Cuba, Venezuela, and London, and in a very strict conservative Christian household, and she she said, you know, when she told her parents she wanted to to be an actor, they were basically like equivalent to a streetwalker. Yeah. Oh, no. and, uh, and so, like, it's really interesting because I do think John Waters' ideal is both comes from the way he was raised and also the fake veneer that we're presented uh, through media on television. Yeah. You know, the Leave It to Beavers, they they. And then Kathleen Turner doesn't have that mental base. So she says it's all in the writing. But I don't think that's necessarily true because I do think she has to have drawn something from her upbringing to to get that sort of like, um, you know, like pearls, like bring my husband his slippers, like make sure there's a pie, you know, at dinner. So everybody has dessert. Uh, I've heard John Waters describe it as uh, what if Martha Stewart snapped. But I think that's I think that's even so I think that was just his way of being like updating it for the now. Cause I think it's almost reductive in yeah. comparison to like thinking about the real sort of conservative archetypes that you would get from the fifties, sixties and seventies. She also fucks like, and yes. not just like, like, Oh, it, that sex scene is crazy town. She's like, there was a trampoline in bed. Uh, yeah. She, yeah, no, I mean, literally there's a trampoline. That's how they did that scene. There was a tiny trampoline in the bed. That's going up and down because <laughs> the, the way it's not like, oh, honey, I want to fuck. It's like, he's like, quiet. The kids are going to hear. And she's like, oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Is that the yeah. first? Absolutely. <laughs> I was like, absolutely you're not even not. trying to keep it together, girly. Like Ricky Lake and oh, who's the son? Um, Matthew Lillard. And his Matthew big Lillard. screen debut. God bless. God bless. S- so cute. Um, yeah. They're listening to mom getting pounded out. Yeah. Um, and she is not being discreet. And so I think this actually brings me to sort of my thesis about this whole trad wife of it all is that um, Beverly Suffin has control in her home. Um, and to get that, she exchanges the idea of subservience to a husband figure in this sort of milk toast 50s nonsense wife of the past. And I think that uh, if you actually look at some of the trad wife shit that is going on and this sort of fantasy that um, I guess folks in heterosexual man woman relationships are engaging in is this this idea that like, oh, well, I if I can be in charge of cooking and cleaning in the house, then it's okay for everyone to think that I'm subservient to this one person, um, which is, is is a unique type of feminism, I suppose. But one of the things that we would say in the 90s is that this is not where we were going in 1994. Right. Um, you, you'd think. Well, you'd think. well, yeah, I know, right. I know. <laughs> Back to your Cassandra comment. Like, yeah, my girl, yeah. like, this is, this is, this is kind of wild, really. Did, did either of your mothers have, or mother figures in your life, have any of these traditional roles that we see Beverly sort of cling to? I mean, I think my mom's traditional role as a, as a mother in the household came more from, like, cultural yeah. place. Uh, I, to this day, she's making dinner, and she's like, she's whenever I go home, she's like, oh, I have to have, make sure I have dinner for your dad. I'm like... Mom, dad is a grown man. He can make food if right. he needs it. <laughs> right. Like, what the fuck? But, like, she's still... and But I don't think it's, like, anything... Um, sometimes she is very much like, okay, I'm just going to throw pizza in the oven. What, not a big deal. Uh, 
definitely not like you know there's no gum in the house i i do one of the crazy things i remember is like as a child she'd ask a question and if we misheard i was like what and she would be like what is so you don't fucking say what and now and, oh. and me and my sisters were like what are we supposed to say and literally because of our like my mother's ESLness, she was like you say mande and I was like, well, what does Monday okay. mean? And she was like, it's like what, but like more respectful. And I was like, are you fucking? <laughs> it's basically excuse me in Spanish um, or come again in Spanish. But I, little things like that would trickle down. But I think her trauma from like her childhood and how strict her mother was, she was she she gave us a break. Yeah, um, yeah. But, but cer- certainly not in the Beverly um, oeuvre right. of yeah. trad wifeness. Um. My mom, uh, on the reverse of that, is a is a martyr, and so she uh, she worked all the time mm. when I was a kid, and and worked overnight. She's a she's a nurse, um, uh, specializing in pediatrics oh, and, cool. and taking care of uh, special care uh, babies and whatnot. And so, I mean, I I have a lot of vivid memories of like seeing my mom for like two hours a day um growing up and i and i don't uh i don't mean that as like a negative thing i love my mother and i I think she's so funny and whatnot but uh, the you know it just she worked she worked for a living and worked for us so a lot of the times my dad was like doing the cooking and whatnot because he worked midday so like he would be home at like six and uh and and be the person to like shuttle us off to whatever after school activity we're doing or or cook and everything and my mom would literally like work from like midnight to 8 a.m. and then be sleeping. But I do have a, f- a funny the, the reverse of Beverly Sutton memory of coming home from preschool, not even kindergarten, preschool. Wow. And my parents had gotten my sisters and I a uh, original Nintendo um, a couple years after it had come out. So like not, we weren't like on the cutting edge, never on the cutting edge. And my mom was still up. And she was playing Dr. Mario. And she had been playing it from the time I went to to preschool to the time I came home. And I was like, what? (laughs) She needed to unwind. Right. And and literally when we were up for Christmas, we brought our Switch and uh, Dad was playing Mario Wonder. And my mom was like... I love Mario. <laughs> I was love like, that. I was like, still yes. to this day, like, <laughs> I think like hearing both like, what we just talked about is like, I just realized Beverly does not have a job. Right. Um, no. And both of our mothers are working Worked. women. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a, good, a big like aspect of this also in class. Like, this is not just a white woman mother. This is a wealthy, yeah. well-to-do person who, uh, you know. It's like fucking Teflon, you know. You can't wrestle, and, and and this is like the like we're at Karen world right now, and like you know in in society today because of like you know the, the long lineage, yeah. right? You can trace back to Beverly. I'm glad you bring up class because one of the biggest sort of enemies of the idea that you can have a traditional thing like a Beverly Sutphin is a change in the economy and the expectation of the working class to have two adults employed for a household, uh, regardless of children, regardless of anything. And um, so listen up, misogynists, if you want a woman to take care of you, pass better tax regulations and we can do it. Say that. You know, and honestly, if she did have a job, she would not be able to stay home and separate those recyclables from the garbage because that's what she's doing during the day. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, she, I, I think she gets up to a lot during the day, but we're going to talk about that as we go <laughs> beat by beat. I will say that Waters, in an interview with Austin Trunick from Under the Radar magazine, did compare his own mother to Serial Mom, uh, mostly in her particularities about not liking gum being chewed. And he said he inherited a lot of those, including that he doesn't like summer white after Labor Day, a concept I am only familiar with because of this movie, truly and honestly. <laughs> wow. wow. Um, Even on the commentary to the film, like if you watch the commentary, it gets to the moment where she sees Patty Hearst playing juror number eight, wearing the the white shoes in the commentary. He's like this. I do believe he's like, I don't think murder is justified. But if somebody is wearing white after Labor Day, they deserve to die. Wow. (laughs) He's like, he's like, she's right. Fashion has not changed. And it's funny. One of the pieces I'm currently working on as an editor, I'm cutting a TV show currently. Um, there's an interview subject who's very lovely and seems very nice, but she's wearing fucking white boots the whole time. And I'm judging her mentally wow. in my head. <laughs> Gavin, is it just shoes? Or, Cause I think anytime I put on a white shirt, I think about if it's after Labor Day or not. I or think pants. it's, I, yeah, I was oh, going to say, I think it extends to pants. As well. I don't, yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't need white pants. Fashion has really not clear. changed, David. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah I, I believe that this was drilled into me. Uh, this, this got me as an adolescent. This is in the back of the brain. This is in lizard. Waters ended up saying that uh, he felt like Beverly always meant well. She wasn't evil. She was just misdirected and overreacted to small, small displeasures. On the other hand, in his 1994 review, the big man himself, Roger Ebert, wrote, Beverly Sutphin is helpless and unwitting in a way that makes us feel almost sorry for her. And that undermines the humor. She isn't funny crazy. She's sick crazy. And so as we explore the beat by beat, we're going to talk about the psychology <laughs> tomato, of Tomato, tomato, tomato. Yeah, exactly. Boo Earns. Well, okay. <laughs> it was Ebert, so you knew that was coming, right? Right. I was I was actually, I just, because I peaked at your notes yesterday, I was telling a friend about that. I was like, I cannot believe Ebert said that. And my friend was like, you well, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> after, after he got sober, it did feel like he could pay attention to movies less. And I was like, yeah. It's very clear. <laughs> I do, I, it's, it's funny that you thought, I can't believe you said this, because to me, this is a paint-by-numbers Roger Ebert review. <laughs> like, yeah. 100%. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about some of her psychopath- psychopathy, but um, uh, when you all consider this, do you think that this is a character who's extremely reactionary through normal stimulus, as Waters said? Do you believe this is a troubling vignette of mental illness, as Ebert said? Or is this a secret third thing in between <laughs> those two? Uh, I think a lot of things are a secret, a secret third thing. thing. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I definitely lead towards more towards Waters. I mean, well, first of all, it's his baby. It's his so, art. like, yeah. I, I would, I would believe the person who made it over the person who's critiquing it from the outside. But once again, you know, in the end, it doesn't really truly matter what an art artist thinks. It's what the 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 person perceiving the art. Um, but when I read that, I think, what movie did Ebert see? Because I tr- truly, if you can't laugh at what Beverly Sutphin is doing like then right. perhaps the onus is on you uh but yeah I I think it is definitely I mean it's definitely more towards uh, Waters read for me um and I do want to say like I do think there there's weirdly moments where like she's a good mom there's that moment where Ricky Lake is like oh I want to lose weight and her brother is like oh it's because it's this guy she wants and Beverly's just like, darling, if you want to lose weight, do it for yourself, not for somebody else. Yeah. And I'm like, that's great advice because nice and I know you mentioned say. earlier, like, maybe we don't want to get into our own parents. But like, 
I remember watching, um, there's an Adam Sandler movie called Spanglish, Spanglish that not a lot of people love, but I saw it with my mom. So I have a special mm-hmm. like place in my heart for it. There's a moment in Spanglish where Taya Leone plays this awful, irredeemable mother character. And she buys her daughter clothes that are too small Ooh. for her. And the daughter's like, these don't fit me. And she's like, they're aspirational clothes. And like, Ooh. I could like, my mom doesn't really get that emotional during movies. And like, I turned and my mom was like tearing up. She's like, my mom used to do that. <gasps> And so, like, and so, like, when I watch Kathleen Turner be like, if you want to lose weight, lose it for yourself, not for somebody else. I'm like, yes, (laughs) you are the mother we need. Besides the killing. (laughs) (laughs) But I think, like, you know, I I do think it's reactionary. And it's uh, the murder, the serial killing is, you know, a metaphor for, like, how sometimes we do react to these things. Where it's like, oh, I could just fucking kill you. You can't just fucking recycle Mm -hmm. Oh, or or the idea that like you know um she kills the teacher because he like is is saying that like your son's not going to college and and as young people especially like a lot of things do feel life and death like the guy blew ricky lake off like she like she could yeah. fucking die like it, so this stuff just feels this way you know and i think this movie is taking it to the extreme like what if you don't just feel this way you actually react on that and that's what Beverly is doing. She's reacting right. to these things where she's like, oh my fucking God, can you, like, because we talk shit all the time. It's like, that bitch is wearing fucking white shoes. She looks so fucking stupid. She should kill, <laughs> she should kill herself. Right. And, and like, and that's the, the this movie is, is uh, the expression of that to the extreme. Um, and, and it's funny because as a culture, we do that all the time. We, we live in the hyperbole. We always say like, oh, fucking kill yourself. Whatever. Like, and it's fucked up. It is fucked up. But it's funny at that moment when like at the very end when Suzanne Summers and the entire like jury finally realizes like, oh, fuck. Oh, yeah. He just like let her off and like being confronted with like, well, you did say kill yourself. Yeah. Well, you did say right. she should die. Right. And, like, and that, there, there's that moment earlier on after she does kill Ricky Lake's uh, intended paramour where she like turns Ricky Lake and she's like, well, you, you said, said you, you she was dead. Him. Yeah. And yeah. she's like, I didn't want this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, well, so the, the, the secret third the, thing then for me is truly these two ideas that they are put together in that this is a vignette of a serial killer, except she's actually just a mother in this world. So she is reacting to normal stimuli that a mother is, is exposed to constantly in this suburban town. And she's reacting the way a sociopath responds, which is to kill people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, and like it's funny you get to peek into all these other lives um who's the friend she ends up killing like the parents at um and him eventually at the rock show but like you you we're literally peering through the windows of all these neighbors and they're like alleged normal lives um the scene of like the the two other parents like watching jeopardy and like the eating their food and it's kind of like really grotesque i'm yeah. like god that's your everyday life damn yeah what the fuck um and but like that's a reality for a lot of people, you know. Like I could look out my window and be like, "Oh my god, my fucking neighbors are crazy." Yeah. Um, but that's everybody, uh, and uh, it's fun. Like this movie, it's funny that way. She's it's exposing all of those kind of like nitty gritty everyday things. And like you said, she's a mother who. Um, a, a lot of these people who die, it's kind of like not that you they feel like they deserve it, but it's kind of like, huh. 
their lives are disgusting and I guess so it was mine. In, so like in her POV, few... they do. And you know, that's how yeah. we're viewing it as an audience. So um, I think, I think that's worth it. We, we do have to of course talk about the vision that is Kathleen Turner in this role. We, we've started a little bit on this. I wanted to start with that. Waters has said that the part wasn't written for anyone in particular and that there were several people on the table, including Glenn Close, Meryl Streep, mm. Roseanne Barr, and even Julie Andrews. Per Waters, this was driven by clueless executives who were trying to solve for X in an equation of which actress would generate the most profit. I don't often think of ourselves living in the best timeline that we possibly could, but this has certainly exposed me to worse ones. What do you think about <laughs> what do you think about some of the other actresses that might have been considered for this role? First of all, worst timeline would be Roseanne Barr. Sure. Best yeah. t- best timeline would be Julie Andrews. That oh would God. be fucking incredible. No, see, no. see, I think I, I think the joke would wear thin though, and yeah. I, I feel bad saying that because I love Julie Andrews. And it's funny because that interview I read with Vulture a couple of years ago, the uh, interviewer asked her about. He's like, "Oh, I think she's very sort of Julie Andrews," and she and uh, Kathleen Turner was like, "I think Julie Andrews would not like that comparison." And he's <laughs> like, "What?" He's like, "Well, she was considered for the role," and he. And, Kathleen Turner just goes, wouldn't that be a laugh? Yeah. Um, but but I, I, th- I think out of those, like, the best would be Glenn Close. Glenn Close. I think Glenn I Close would take she the highs and the lows. She would have killed it. Yeah, she clearly is the most, like, in the ver- uh, in the same lane. I could do all the things just as, like, well, like, yes. Uh, Meryl would be boring. Yeah, uh, she'd be fine. But I just think... Julie Andrews would be like kind of a gag. What 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 Louis Louis what you want is SNL to have a skit of Julie Andrews being serial mom. That's what you <laughs> correct. Want. Well, also I just think like Julie Andrews does not get the opportunity to be evil. That's true. Or like or or had it or you know has not. You've never so- seen Mary Poppins. <laughs> <laughs> that, that bitch is mean. <laughs> I, I, I think what Louis is saying would... is that Julie Andrews doesn't get to say cocksucker a lot, and, and yes, the world correct. needs that. And it would be hilarious. Um, Princess Diaries 3, write it and she'll do it. I mean, <laughs> like, listen. Um, no, instead we get Turner, and this might just be my genetics talking, but she was just an absolute sex symbol bombshell in the 1980s yeah, after portraying Maddie Walker in Body Heat, Joan Wilder in Romancing the Stone. But for me, at least it was all about Jessica Rabbit in Who Framed Robber Rabbit that cinched the deal for me. Uh, legs for days, boobs for days. I, I love Kathleen Turner. The voice is oh, just yes. incomparable. She gives... No one can do line readings like Kathleen Turner. You know, the voice in particular is interesting to me because that deep husky voice, it it naturally plays with a gender expression of how women should be. Do you think that that helped this character? That's a good question. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's funny because, uh, you know, she is, even though she is, I think, very beautiful and sexy, um, she is not, at least what we would consider now, like, super skinny ultra blonde yeah. you know like it and sh- and there is kind of this um masculine quality to her right just in the fact that she is so in control of the space and and her, and her, her family because even like um who plays her husband um sam sam, sam Waterston. Waterston, who is hot um <laughs> but he kind of is the, like the like confused the constantly oh, confused so look he's yeah so it does good. something for me i agree like but he he's kind of <laughs> Like I hope this is not controversial to say, but like he is kind of giving like beta cuck boy, yeah. Um, and and she is like the the dom, um, and yeah. I think yeah, the voice I think does play to that because it's seductive, mysterious, 
powerful um you know and- i mean when when she used i mean when she like screams at the end of the movie when she's like Ooh. suzanne summers yeah this is not my best side and like That's i have hot. to deepen my voice to do to, to hit that range yeah. and so like there yeah there absolutely is a power into that sort of huskiness quality to it yeah, I love but it. But I think that's I, also what also makes it so alluring. Yeah. Because it's not something you encounter that much. Yeah, but and, and I think you're right because I, I think that it, it it makes the scenes where Beverly is doing things that are a little bit more of the serial mom than the Beverly Sutphin of it all, that it, it makes it a little bit more like she's almost two people because she's playing with your expectation of this like frilly uh, white voice that we hear all the other women give mm-hmm. throughout this performance. And so there's something different about this character. I, I don't think it was written with that in mind. But I think when you when you got this actor, you got sort of a two for one. And Waters, I, I assume, was very happy about that. She has said that she plays this movie. Kathleen Turner has played this movie kind of like a multiple personality. And not necessarily like she's like, I want to be very clear. It's not a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde situation. Right. But she's like, there is a like a change in my eyes when I switch into the serial mom mode. And she's like, it's funny. They had me. They actually had me painted for the painting that hangs above the mantle. There's the Beverly Sutton painting. And she's like, what's funny to me is it has the serial mom eyes. It Mm. doesn't have the Beverly Sutton eyes. Mm. And so I couldn't keep it in my house. And and she's like, I hated looking at it. It was too intense for me. And I eventually just eBayed it. Good for her. (laughs) Wow. Wow. That is awesome. I wish that I, I wish we had had this conversation back when that happened. I would have bought that and put it in a room. I don't go in very often because it would have scared the fuck out of me in the middle of the night. Also good for that artist capturing those eyes. Like that's crazy. That painting is unnerving, but a lot of paintings are unnerving. I will also say paintings of people are weird. Paintings should be of horses. Yeah. Kids don't go to museums. Don't learn about history. Stay home. Watch reality tv water lilies fine <laughs> i'm just saying people are weird gavin pussy willows fine pussy willows. <laughs> oh my god what was that missed opportunity <laughs> <laughs> y'all have not talked turner in depth so are there any other general thoughts you have about uh miss kathleen turner she's an icon we'll never forget yeah, yeah. i like I, without trying to get t- making this too sad um we've really done kathleen turner wrong we have. uh unfortunately uh because right around this time she started to really suffer from uh a really horrible case of rheumatoid arthritis she even said that there were days on the set where her feet were swelling so bad because that's one of the initial signs um that and she couldn't afford to just buy new shoes every time her feet swelled she would just jam her feet into the shoes and just carry on and that was like not a good decision and because of that over over time she's gained like she basically this this disability um really made it so she lost her sex symbol status yeah she lost her sex symbol status because we we are so casually cruel in the society to people who do not conform to a certain look she started gaining weight and everything and i still think she's a really really fantastic actress she's not had as many opportunities uh because of this because of you know the this inability but i did a couple years ago get to see her on stage at the metropolitan opera she was in an opera there's a a opera called the daughter of the regiment and there's a speaking role in that uh in that opera that is because it's a comedy um and uh the Kraken, Kraken, Krakenthorpe is the yeah the Madame Krakenthorpe, and so she played that role. And what's really funny is the opera is in French. Oftentimes, the dialogue itself will be in English because that they will stunt cast, much like casting Kathleen Turner. 
And she came out and for the first two lines did it in French. <gasps> and it was so shocking because everybody was like, she's going to do English. She's going to do. And and then she immediately drops it. She's like, oh, my French isn't that good. But it was yeah. so good. And like, this is a famously stunt cast role. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg played uh, Krakenthorpe at one point. Uh, Monet Exchange has played Krakenthorpe Ooh, at one point wow. in Chicago. So like, it's it's so cool to be able to see, like uh, go in and see a celebrity do it. And and Kathleen Turner just ate that fucking stage up. She loved every second yeah. that she was on it. Queen of Gags. So, but I I just wish that we valued talent um, oh. over the physical. Yeah. And it's it's just been really unfortunate that you know because this you know people get debilitating, crippling oh. diseases all the time. Uh, well, it's, and we, we some level instantly... of ability loss awaits us all as we age. Yeah, and so absolutely. Th- th- there's probably a double pain that you feel about that, Gavin, because you know that this awaits us all. And because we are not rich and powerful, um, we will all be disposed of when we are no longer beautiful. But for now, we're all fucking hot. So um, <laughs> I'm going to drive. I actually have to I have to feed myself to the Morlocks after this. Done, we're done recording. So <laughs> all we have to remember is that none of us will be rich. And at least there's that. <laughs> wow. Wow. Uh, well, with that, I will send us into Serial uh, Mom from 1994, written and directed by John Waters. the birds out there? Listen to their call. Oui? Oui? This is the story of Beverly Sutphin. Scramble eggs, anybody? A devoted mother. I'm so happy I could chip. You know how I hate the brown word. A loving wife. You think the kids are awake? We could be very quiet. I'm ready. Honey, you're hot tonight. And a suspected murderer. Oh, kids, are you doing your homework? How did America's number one mom turn into one of America's most wanted? Is she really guilty? Are you a serial killer? Chip, the only serial I know anything about is Rice Krispies. Is she the only one with a motive? Believe that damn litter bugger. Give her a happy face. Or is there someone else? I'm stood up. I'll kill that jerk. With an axe to grind. Now I'll never get a boyfriend. Meanwhile, this small Baltimore suburb keeps getting smaller and smaller. It's been a crazy day, hasn't it? Savoy Pictures asks the burning question, Is your wife mental? Is Beverly Sutphin just a sweet suburban housewife? Well, I don't know what it is about today, but I feel great. Cookie? Or is she... Serial Mom. Cool. Is she in a band? Kathleen Turner, Sam Waterston, and Ricky Lake. Serial Mom. Every woman wants to be wanted. Just not for murder one. Beverly, I've read all about this. Is it menopause? The film begins with an opening crawl that declares that what we're about to watch is based on a true story. This sets the stage that it's a very real world and Beverly is among it. Uh, This is an irreverent fiction from a surrealist author, but I wonder, did you all get fooled by this during an early viewing or your first viewing? Did you think like, oh my God, this is fucking real? 
I did when I first saw it because yeah. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> That's because, listen, Gavin, I want you to know that things are better when you're dumb. We have way much <laughs> more fun over here. I I was I was 12 years old and you could not tell me shit. <laughs> <laughs> you were a Jada Pinkett Smith walking into that Goodwill. Could yeah. not clock her, honey. I... I I I would I, when I first watched it, I was like, "This is crazy." But then, like you know, obviously, like as you go through, it's like this is just part of the recipe. This is yeah. part of like because also you know he is saying, obviously, this is not tr- true. But like, there is a lot of truth in this movie. There is oh, yeah. a lot of like you know people who get away with shit like this because of their class and because of their race. Um, and and there's a lot of truth in like you know. That we punish people for very stupid fucking things, um, you know. Th- we don't love each other enough. Like there's there's a lot of truth in here, but um, yeah, it's a very silly bit that I did fall for the first time I watched the movie. I just well, even on this rewatch as a as a grown man, I turned to Mike, my husband, and I said, "Wait a second, was this based on a true story?" And he's like, "No, you idiot. This is a John Waters movie," um, which showed a level of care that Mike usually doesn't bring to this sort of thing. Um, wow. which was really great for me to be, to be stupid. Um, just, just truly, honestly, <laughs> it's, it's so funny too. And this is part of the, the idea of waters being an Oracle. I mean, this movie literally comes out two months before the OJ trial begins. And so like, he really already gloms onto the idea that like people are obsessed with true crime and he, he's like really hitting that before. And even like, you know, we, we've covered the Coen brothers on our show before, like the Coen brothers do it two years later in Fargo. And that's just, I mean, straight people, they're always just a little behind. Oh, I was behind. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. Well, we go from credits into an establishing shot of a suburban Baltimore home with a perfectly manicured lawn. The family is sitting around a breakfast table and we get our first glimpses into who Beverly is. She's serene and peaceful, attentive to her family. Then remarking on how she feels about the sounds of gum being chewed, somewhat annoyed with her daughter, and then to her huntress-like tracking of a fly that she eventually doesn't kill. Just want to make sure we're really clear that the statute of limitations is up on this, but we are to assume (laughs) is killed. Um, I love now knowing that this was a little bit, because it is too gory for a fly, but I love that directed by John, directed and written by John Waters shows up um, over the fly's guts, because that's just perfect. Stunt queen. Yeah. <laughs> There's a knock at the door. Two police detectives visit to inquire if anyone in the family knows about harassing phone calls or threatening letters that have been received by uh, Dottie, who is a neighbor in town. Um, they say no, but we'll learn later that that's not the case. The kids, Chip, which is played by Matthew Lillard, uh, Misty, who's played by Ricky Lake, and husband Eugene, Sam Waterston, all head off. Chip with his friend Scotty, who doesn't wear his seatbelt, which again is is just said like it's the biggest crime that ever exists. And Misty well, with her listen, boyfriend, David, Carl. there's a law. Let's okay. <laughs> I love that she's like, she's like, um, police officers, go arrest that fucking child. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow. Uh, Beverly would swat someone today. That that is the uh, yeah, Beverly. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Is she the Punisher? Oh now I'm thinking yeah, about it. Kind of. Kind of. <laughs> kind of. Wow. Wow. Um, if John Waters listens to this, and you just heard Louis compare your um, your your like cult classic to the Punisher, uh, not the I, character of the Punisher, oh, okay, the movie, okay, okay, but okay, it's like okay. the character. She. Frank Castle, if you will, okay? Um, like she's... You know what? The last time I was on the subway, I did see a gaggle of cops all wearing Beverly Sutton patches. Right, so. right, right. Listen, we could do worse. We could do worse. Oh my worse. god. What if Beverly becomes like a Blue Lives Matter like icon? Oh my god. This that... is what I'm this is what I was saying. Yeah, before. That's, what, that's what I'm saying. Like that would be the worst timeline. If like Beverly is about law and order. 
People will be punished. <laughs> yep. She gets her guest spot on My Favorite Murder. Everyone goes crazy. It's um, yeah. it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we get the glimpse into these harassing phone calls in a split screen scene between Dottie and Beverly. The insults escalate and escalate and escalate and poor Dottie is on edge. Hello? Is this the cocksucker residence? God damn you. Stop calling here. Isn't this 4215 pussy way? You Bitch! Now let me check the zip code. Two one two. Fuck you. The police are tracing this call this very minute. Well, Dottie Hinkle, then why aren't they here? Huh? Fuck face. Fuck you. <laughs> Didn't I just say fuck you? I beg your pardon. Who is this? Mrs. Wilson from the telephone company. I understand you're having problems with an obscene phone caller. Yes, I am. I'm sorry, Mrs. Wilson, but this is driving me crazy. I've had my number changed twice already. I'm a divorced woman. Please help me. Oh, well, I know it's difficult, but we need to know the exact words. I'll try. Cocksucker. That's what she calls me. Lizzie, you filthy mouth, you fucking whore! God damn you! We go out of our way in the first scene to imply that the word pussy is something a proper woman and mother would never say. Uh, what does it mean for Beverly to use the words pussy, fuck, and cocksucker in this scene? It's okay that she says it. Oh, because okay. she's a lady. She's, she's a lady. like a fine upstanding lady, but nobody else better say it. <laughs> right. Well, it's, it's she's weaponizing these things to take people down. And and also I, I she she finds perverse joy and like revealing their hypocrisy yeah you know right. and, and like what gavin was saying earlier she's like bitch i see right through your facade don't you fucking play with me bitch like and uh and she just she uses that all through the movie until the end you know when when uh, dotty has that breakdown on on the stand um but yeah it's she's she's it's the classic uh karen you know weaponizing the thing like but I'm but a white lady woman right. and and I'm playing by the rules and you're not. It's, it's, it, yeah, it's gaslighter denier. The movie. Well, I mean, it's also one of those things that like, you know, clearly this woman's not taping her phone calls. So it's basically something she can very easily get away from. And it is fun to watch her specifically escalate her reign of terror against Dottie Hinkle because when she, when they're physically in a room together and she like breaks the Franklin Mint Fabergé egg and it's like, oh, what a clumsy ox you are. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's, you know, that's her like stepping it up to like be like, and now I can do things right in front of other people's faces and still make you not. And, but I, I think that's what's funny about this is like, you know, we've all, I think we're all old enough to have received a prank caller. Sure. It doesn't really happen anymore in yeah. the age of cell phones, but uh, we've all received a prank caller and it's just been like, whatever. But yeah. the fact that Dottie Hinkle is so upset to have somebody call up and be like, you know, is this 4215 pussy way? <laughs> it's also like <laughs> 212 two, fuck you. <laughs> she, she. She has this power over everyone because she knows the other neighbor doesn't recycle. She knows that right. this bitch is having a beer at noon. And so she's like, y'all can't clock me. I yeah. am the ultimate diva of the neighborhood because you don't know what my vice is. My vice is murder. And, right. And, and, and what they're, what John Waters is saying here is like in culture, murder is fine, you know, but <laughs> if you are an alcoholic if you are right. someone who doesn't care right. about the planet, you should be demonized, and and um, it's just delicious. And the and the other thing is that I guess I hadn't really thought about this before. Like these are all vices that like they are the other characters are not proud of. Like I mean, obviously, uh, 
her neighbor that doesn't recycle like just sort of the only people that know that it's between her and the garbage man and then obviously you know beverly and or like having a beer like it's fine but it's not like something you necessarily talk right. about beverly like um like once she is kind of exposed as a murderer she doesn't really deny it until like the court case it's just like no, yeah. something I'm even, doing. Even like, the court case, I mean, we'll get there, but she never denies the murders. She's no. right. You can't prove the murders. Let the record show I'm merely standing here. Just merely standing here. Um, <laughs> I will say that for for a psychopath or a sociopath, um, the pain is actually the goal. So I would I would also posit that if Dottie didn't react to these calls, she wouldn't have gotten them. It yeah. is Dottie's suffering that Beverly seeks that is thrilling Beverly in such a way. I love that the pleasure, the pleasure, the pleasure, the pain. Yeah, I, I also love that when her, um, I, I keep forgetting her other friend's name, the one that doesn't recycle. But oh, I, Rosemary, I, Rosemary, I do love when Rosemary like, like very sneakily sneaks into her house, which is also yeah. like a big no no. And she overhears the phone call when she's like, "I heard screaming." She's like, oh, "You know those cable companies, right?" Right, Beverly. Beverly's able to talk her way out of it, hundred percent. Yeah, like that's a perfectly fine way to talk to somebody who's just doing their job. But like, <laughs> God forbid you do it to a neighbor. And I'd also say for for Waters, the script and for the story that ultimately gets told, this is a very important first set piece because it tells us a story of escalation. I don't believe that Beverly's killed at this point. I believe that no, this, this... I, or at least not on screen. But Beverly almost getting caught is this is this thing that we describe as escalation with a sociopath for any antisocial or criminal behavior. Success without consequence, especially when it seems like you should have been caught, really deepens the need to escalate that behavior. It's almost like if I want to get high again, I can't just call Dottie because I almost got caught by Rosemary. So now I need to step it up. What's the next thing that'll get me kind of excited and high? Um, and I think that if we're establishing the beginnings of a serial killer, this works perfectly. Yeah, she's like, who can I run over? Yeah, let's well, go. <laughs> then let's go. Because uh, Beverly is on her way to the school for the PTA meeting. We said PTA a bunch, but it is a meeting with one teacher. Um, so yep. unless PTA means something that I'm not familiar with, I wasn't quite tracking that. No, I think that's like an error. It was, yeah. It's yeah. literally just like a, it's a one-on-one okay. teacher well, meeting. But right? she's yeah. having her parent-teacher t- conference, a PTC. Yes, yeah. Um, the motivation of why Dottie is subject to all this harassment gets told in a flashback after Beverly drives by her on the road. Um, here it is. Beverly went to go park at Joanne Fabrics and was cut off by an unrepentant Dottie. That's it. Yeah. Uh, did you all expect to to die? She has to die. (laughs) She has to die. Did you all expect more here? Or was this like, was this shocking? It was shocking to me how little this scene was. But that's, that's what I, that's why I don't understand what I see. Roger Ebert, like, you know, RIP, whatever. But the, like, review this film and be like, no, she's sick. It's not funny at all. But it's like, it is funny because she literally wants someone to die for cutting her off. Like, and that's exactly what Louis was saying earlier. Like, we go through a billion scenarios in our head every day. We just don't mean them. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, and like, but like, Beverly does. Beverly's like, I will remember this slight. Like, and. Right. It it's uh it's the Mel the old Mel Brooks quote, which is like, um, tragedy is me getting a paper cut, comedy is you falling down a sewer and dying. <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> and like yeah. and that's and, and that's like that's what it is for Beverly. Like to her, it's like this fucking bitch. I gotta remove her from the world. Well, she will I mean, never like, cut anyone else off yeah, again. You and I, Gavin, are not driving people in New York City, but like I imagine 
the banality of living in the fucking suburbs and just try to fucking go to Joanne Fabrics. Right. And some fucking cunt is cuts me <laughs> off, does not give a shit. I have nothing else to do at home. I've already taken out the recycle. Okay. Yeah. So unfortunately you have to die now. Like yeah. that, let's go that, pick that, out your funeral shroud at Joanne's. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That tracks for me. It's funny because after remembering the offending incident, Beverly must go to a headspace where she remembers giving the prank call. Cause she has this moment of euphoria on her face. Um, also in a draft script that I found, uh, she did a U-turn, uh, went back to the house intending to kill Dottie. Uh, but because she had gone back inside, simply set fire to her flowers, um, wow. which would have also <laughs> been a lot of fun. But I, I like that we're, we're stepping up escalation rather than jumping straight to that. I wonder if that scene was ever shot, and I wonder if that like exists somewhere. I feel like John Waters is not a person who really believes in deleted scenes, no. but I, I I would be curious to watch that scene of her burning her flowers. Uh, we do finally get to the school, and prior to the scene with Beverly, we get one of very few omniscient narratives in the story. It's almost always Beverly, Beverly, Beverly. Um, and we get a small ski- scene between Mr. Stubbins and Mrs. Tadlock. Lotter, who is one of two black characters in the film and the only other character besides Beverly who is explicitly identified as having children. So the only other mother in this entire movie um, is identified. And Mr. Stubbins is explaining that her son isn't college material. I almost wasn't going to include this in our conversation, but for all the white privilege that's part of this narrative of a suburban housewife who can ultimately be found innocent of six murders, it feels poignant to talk about the educational redlining that Mr. Stubbins is represented here. What did, did this stick out to you all? I mean, I mean, for me, I, I, I immediately clocked. I was like, oh, there's, yeah. there's a black person who has lines in this movie. Um, but also just how, I mean, for me and in and, and, and the watch and thinking about John Waters, it's kind of like how it, it didn't feel like a racial thing. It felt like the cruelty mm. and this hypocrisy washes over everybody you know right. and, and and not necessarily about like the educational aspect of it it just kind of felt like um the idea of of you know because mr stubbins is the man right he is yeah. the one who is like uh and and he does kind of the same thing to to beverly like this is what's happening like right we see it happen to miss Tapwater and then to beverly where this kind of fucking whatever high school teacher fuck off like guy is like casting off their children right and so it's kind of to me it just read like uh uh there are no bounds obviously like obviously um people of color uh, um have uh harder times and and racism is real uh but it i think for me it felt like john waters was saying you know there are no bounds for um the cruelty of Mm -hmm. fucking men who are um, in powers of position or positions of power yeah, I think you. I think you hit the nail on the head. I think you're both right. I think it, it plays both ways, and and John Waters is probably pretty conscious of that about how it plays both ways. I don't want to denigrate teachers. I've known a lot of great teachers oh, of my 100%. life. hundred percent. I've I've also known some I do. <laughs> yeah, but but like it is very true, and it's it's sort of like you were talking about earlier. Uh, David, when it comes to power, Beverly's power comes like as as a psychopath comes from you know the the getting a reaction. I think in Mr. Stubbins as a, a like authority figure, it's the same thing for him Ooh. where he's like, well, like I have the ability to basically ruin someone's life or yeah. not. But it's also like such an abstract concept to him that it doesn't 
matter. Like he he's like, well, I you know, I don't think your son's good for college, whatever. Like, but then he's able to like go home. Like it does it truly doesn't affect him in the long run if if these children go to college, if anyone goes to college or anything. But like it's his own small power fantasy mm-hmm. that you know he gets to do it and then forget it. Yeah. Well, he's not going to make it home. Uh, sorry to yeah. break your heart here, Gavin. But <laughs> well, uh, that's that's the thing. She's like, I'm going to make sure that nobody else has yeah. to go through this. So Beverly goes in. She has her meeting with Mr. Seven. He is Chip's math teacher, by the way. We're we're talking about this man like he's the principal, but he literally has a poster board that just says circles on it. So um, let's just polygons. Listen, polygons was on the on the top of the blackboard. I also got that. I will say, just like Gavin, teachers are wonderful. Maybe not Mr. Stubbins. Maybe he could have been yeah. working a little harder. As um, somebody who had a bad math teacher in high school, yeah. Listen, I wish my mom ran. And you need math. What? Uh, well, <laughs> well, well, well. Um, he says that Chip is a good student, but he's unhealthily obsessed with horror films. And he eventually accuses Chip of being a sociopath and suggests therapy before thanking Beverly for coming in. After the meeting, she waits for Mr. Stubbins to come out to his car. She puts her station, work in, station wagon into gear and slowly stalks him in the parking lot. As he puts a piece of chewing gum in his mouth, her resolve is made up. Beverly floors it, smashing into him, reversing over him, and crushing him under the vehicle mr stubbins is dead the R. gum R. was the the the, was the, the, the 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 straw that broke the camel's back babe yep. okay she said oh yeah you're gonna get it's murdered. done now it's done now i was thinking about it but now it's done the motivation of this also has a little semblance of a mother's protection for her son are mothers told to be protective against institutions of education i think talk about cassandra again but like this is happening now yeah <laughs> Moms for Liberty. <laughs> I, I I almost put in my my prompt. Do you think Beverly would have been in Moms for Liberty? <laughs> would well, she have been a- I mean, I think that, uh, yeah. Once again, I think all of these things are very like it, it's funny. I mean, I don't know how many of these like psychos are like not to not to be judgmental. Sorry, are are out there like murdering teachers and whatnot. But like that's literally, you know, she she's a perfect prototype of, yeah. of all of this. Yeah. You know. I don't know. Would she be a Moms for Liberty? I think she. I think she would, but I don't think she'd be able to stand any of those other women. Right. She, oh, she she'd, ki- she'd, she'd like, kill in, indiscriminately. She'd kill people in the group and people out of the group. But she would yes. go to the meeting and bring brownies. Oh, absolutely. She would be the top girly. She'd be the president and kill yeah. off anyone who's like trying to fuck with her. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, the character of Stubbins is also an unsympathetic one. I don't feel bad that he got hit by a car. How did you all feel about him getting hit by the car? I do like that in your notes, it actually says, um, I think more racists should be hit by cars. Well, and I agree. Not everyone bought into the thesis that I brought forward was that he was a big racist, but I do think more racists should get hit by cars. Blue station so, wagons in particular. <laughs> I, th- I think it's, I think it's a little column A, a little column B. I think he's both a racist and power hungry. So yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Number one, racists should get hit by cars. Um, what this, this is the first kill of the movie and it, it just like solidifies like it's more. I didn't care that like he was the one who got killed. It's just more like, oh, there like there's blood. Like they show he's got blood in his mouth, and like they're showing her go over and not one hit, but two hits, a forward and a backward. And so it just kind of like sets the tone of like, oh, this is not like you know a PG thirteen scenario. Yeah. This is <laughs> really going in. Well, and here's the deal: the uh, the the you have to hit him twice because if she had hit him once and killed him, you we we as the audience could have forgiven her and said, "Wow, that was just a a, a totally right. spur of the moment insanity thing." To put the car to to put the car into a different gear and then do it again—that's a sociopath. 
Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Um, in, in the background, Luann, a stoner, sees the whole thing, but her as a witness is completely unknown to a contented Beverly who simply drives her station wagon to the car wash. Yeah. And I think, like, Luann as the character is also really important just because she, like, Dottie, who is, like, the alcoholic, we have Luann, who is, like, just a stoner. She's just and a stoner. She, and she is the one who could blow this entire thing up. If only people fucking did not uh, criminalize her and think she was, like, a fucking loser or liar because she smokes weed. Right. Yeah. Right. Probably poignant to mention that Waters was removed from film school because he was caught with cannabis in his dormitory. Um, and so there's probably there's probably a little bit of that being said by the artist of the film as well, Louis. Correct. Well, back at the Suffin household, Beverly is home and she is in a great mood. She makes an outstanding <laughs> dinner for her family, 6.30 p.m. on the dot. But they are interrupted by Rosemary, who's come over to tell them that Mr. Stubbins has been murdered. They turn on the news just in time to see an interview with Luann. You know, uh, the only only thing I would add, and like, I don't, I mean, we don't need to talk about every seed in this, but I do love that she gets home and her son Chip is watching Blood Feast with his friends. And you have his, his one friend who eventually meets his demise, who's like, just it, he's like, let's put on some pussy. Yeah. Like, oh, he's, he's and, got one character and, arc and that is pussy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it's just funny because Beverly's like, I mean, she's disgusted by him because he also doesn't wear a seatbelt, but she, she's disgusted by that. But then it's like, Oh, show me again the scene where he like tears out the heart. Yeah. And it, it I think it's another another bit of commentary on the fact that like we think violence is okay, but sex is never okay. Right. Well, speaking of Gavin, because that night, Beverly and Eugene have what I could only describe as ravenous sexual congress. So just before being intimate, Beverly is admiring a hidden photograph of Charles Manson, um, an, an infamous cult leader and sociopath. And my question to you, Who John Waters is like, oh, like I, I don't want to say a fan, but like John Waters has very of. much been obsessed with Manson his entire life. I mean, lots of people were. That's why he was a good cult leader. <laughs> um, good being in talent, not in morality. Yeah. He's <laughs> the titular cult leader. Yeah, he's, he's the titular. Um so my question to you both was, was Beverly horny for Charles Manson? Was she horny because she'd murdered someone? Or was she horny for Sam Waterston? All answers are accurate. I think she was just riding high on like, yeah. the power. Yeah. <laughs> Look at me. I can do anything. And, you know, and it's funny because Sam is the one who is like, or Eugene, sorry. He's like, okay, read your little bird book. I'm going to bed now. And they're like comically small bed. Yes. Yeah. Um, and she's like, but babe, and she is the one like conquesting him. She is loud, open, um, and and he, I, I, it's almost like, I mean, he's fucking her, but really she's fucking him. Oh, yeah, she's know? fucking him. Yes. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree. I think, I think, you know, like the Manson stuff, like, and the fact that Sam Waterston is just hot, like, sure. our icing on the cake for her. But I think, yeah, she's just already like, mm, isn't it a wonderful world? Like, is this, isn't everything beautiful and lovely? Like it's giving uh, Megan Fox and Jennifer's body where she's just like, Oh my goodness. To murder feels so good. And I'm so <laughs> yeah. hot. Like she's feeling pussy. Like she's, yeah. you know, yeah. Lit literally. Do, what does it mean for a, for, for a mother figure to be this openly sexual? And for this character, is her sexuality tied to her pathology? Do you think that like, that's the narrative we're meant to understand here? I mean, I, I think sex is all about power. Like, yeah. it just is. Yeah. And she has so much of it. Like, and it's kind of wild. Like, you know, 
there there are no white men who like knock her down there are no straight white men who in real world have the most power like right. it is her here and like right. she is conquering everyone she's conquered society and this is not the only man she will use sex against in this yes. movie yes and, which is also interesting to great effect yeah i will tell you yeah yeah and so it's it's john waters has uh utilized like the sexuality of a woman to great effect here like a white woman can use sex to get away with anything you know and the 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 craziest part is just the kids listening and hearing yeah. all yeah. of this you know yeah. um what does it but mean I, for her I do like when you mentioned earlier, like she literally does say we can be quiet. And then she's the first one to be like, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was a lie. The lie detector revealed that that was. Yeah, exactly. Lie. That was a lie. And, and Sam or Eugene is like, babe, shut the fuck. Oh, my God. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm like, well, but but he's getting to a point where there are no more rational thoughts for him. He, right. He's he's getting past it. He is beta cucked. So what can he really say to True. Beverly? And nothing is the answer. Yeah. Well, except for the next morning, because it's it's morning. They have this bird watching trip planned. But uh oh, a phone call comes in, and Eugene has to go into his dental practice to help Ralph Sterner in his dental emergency. Beverly doesn't want him to go, but says that it's okay. She has this little moment of we get we get the psycho music playing. She busts into Chip's room, leans him real close to him, and scares him awake. And this is our only moment in which we see a little bit of that sociopathy directed towards the family. What did you all think about? I mean, Turner is hilarious. It made me laugh out loud. But it's unique to see it. I guess, not Roger Miller. Ebert. She is sad. <laughs> she is not. This was really funny. I laughed a lot about this. At first, I thought she spit on him. I was like, how did she... Why does she get that close? Um, yeah, it's funny because at, for the entire movie, you never feel like the family is in danger. Right, like, right. You never feel like um, she she's never going to compromise the unit, um, the wig. Uh, no, the family unit. But she, yeah, I don't know. I guess she she is mad because her husband has wronged her in this sense, right? Like he's put his job before right. her and her. But do, do you think she wants to go bird watching? The, the bird book was not no. a bird book. Oh, right. Know. No, she lets those all, birds in the first all. scene. I don't know. I I think she uh, she will literally do anything to maintain the like cover, cover of normalcy mm. or quote unquote normalcy. And so like if her husband wants to go bird watching, I think that she would go with him, perhaps sneak off and find a second victim. But uh, but the but I I I truly think that she would have went with him bird watching. But it is funny. Like I I've never like thought about that louis and that's a great like she is blowing off the steam of of her husband um wronging her in that moment and funny enough i mean history is littered with stories medea um you know of of women taking out revenge on their husband by murdering the children and so like it's just that slight small and once again i never feel like the kids are in danger or anything but you are right there is that brief moment of like oh it's the only piece and it's funny that her revenge on her husband is to literally take it out on his firstborn son Like, dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Um, the police do visit the home again and they're there to question Beverly about Mr. Stubbins, but everyone treats the accusation from the police as a joke. And so they leave. Uh, that's probably appropriate because how could this person probably do it? Um, well, I'm just going to start calling him Sam Waterston. Eugene does come to her defense um, and says, my, my wife would know nothing about this accident to which she corrects murder, dear murder. Um, <laughs> 
great moment. Outside at the curb, Beverly notices that Rosemary is dumping her recycling into the trash, and she goes to fetch scissors with murderous intent until she sees her friends, the sanitation workers. Her demeanor instantly changes, and she runs out to greet them cheerfully and bring her freshly sorted recycling. They all watch Rosemary with disdain. She doesn't recycle. Somebody ought to kill her, one of the collectors says. Yeah, and she gives them little um, uh, nips of alcohol, some sort of like whiskey or something. Wow, and they don't Um, fuck around. They drink it right then and there. They're like, yeah. yeah. (laughs) It's 10 a.m., babies. And it's funny. I mean, that's all of this like society in collapse, like the the painted, the the sort of Rockwellian uh, veneer to everything, but it's all seedy underneath. Right, we're looking, and she's like, oh my goodness, darlings, isn't that, like, loser over there, like, fucked? Cheers, let's have our fucking 10 a.m. whiskey. Um, But, like, we're good, normal humans, because at least we recycle. Right, right. I will also say, how 1990s was it that recycling was at this paragon point? I mean, like, I think that if you made this movie today, you couldn't sell the recycling arc as hard as you do, because we're no. all now aware that it all goes to the same place, right? Like, just, right. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, we we all know the the recycling lie. Yeah. <laughs> like and and yeah, in the 90s it was all about um what can we do yeah. as individuals to help save the earth? Right. As like the deflector off of like actual evil right. corporations who fucking have the responsibility to actually um, make change. Now put some more gas in your car. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> Ted, Ted Turner knew what he was doing by funding Captain Planet to be on his networks so that he yes! would tell you that you can make a difference, but please don't ask us a corporation to do so. 100% um, you know, I just, uh, uh, completely unrelated, I just recently found out that after the first season of Captain Planet, Whoopi Goldberg stopped doing the voice of Gaia, and yeah. they replaced her with a white woman? Yeah. And it, <laughs> like, Do you think that's the worst thing that happened vis-a-vis no, Captain Planet? No, okay. <laughs> but, but I just, I was like, huh, that's a bit of my childhood I don't remember. She was busy um, filming Boys on the Side. Yeah. Uh, Captain Planet featured almost every character or actor from Clue. That is my uh, fun little yep. trivia. Fun. Um, and I didn't know that. Uh, I will say that for this scene in this movie, uh, narcissists and psychopaths do this thing where they collect people that they think they might be able to use later, which is exactly what happens in the film's climax when with Beverly's interaction of these characters. What do you all think about the idea of sort of collecting these people and the idea that there's a difference in their class system between Beverly and who they are? Well, I think that's what you're doing right now, collecting me and getting to use that. Um, I would put you in a little terrarium and you would be so happy. Yeah, that's what I realized in this moment. Uh, no, it, yeah. Well, because she she knows she has power over them. She yeah. know, they they are but simple, uh, you know, garbage collector men who she can win over just by, like, recycling and throwing them alcohol. You know, um, it's her flexing her muscles. Yeah. And, 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 and easily. Also, I think she knows that she's, like, hotter than um rosemary 100 i think she's she's like she's giving like i'm the cool mom i'm the i'm the neighbor right. you can like talk to and but like there's all this drama about like you know cutting out the magazine like whatever like she she's a smart girly yeah well, speaking of Rosemary, uh, Beverly goes over to Rosemary's home, startling Dottie, who spots her in the window. Beverly asks if the flowers in the way, uh, the vase inside are pussy willows, intentionally triggering Dottie. And while Rosemary pussy is distracted, Dottie. describing <laughs> the pussy willows, Beverly smashes this Franklin mint Fabergé egg. And Rosemary is tricked into believing that Dottie broke the item. But Beverly is going to whisk her away to the swap meet to buy a replacement. Wow. First of all, I got to ask, do either of you come from families of collectors? 
is collecting something your mothers did. I feel like what are you talking about? That's, that's different, Gavin. That's are, that's that's your you arrested development. Gavin is referencing all the things that are in his background, and that is your arrested development. And we'll get into that next week. Um, <laughs> I'm talking about your bobs right now. Did your mother collect, Gavin? Yeah, I mean, I think I, but I think you know, it's different things. I think you know, when we were kids, it was like my mom was like obsessed with the Disney VHSs. Like we had oh, to have the Disney VHSs. Wow. I think nowadays it's closed for my mom. You know, that's mm. a and like I don't want to like, paint my family as hoarders, but like verging yeah, <laughs> the, yeah. Uh, yeah. and so like that's you know, so I I do think there is a, a bit of a collective there, but I, I don't know if there was anything, uh, you know, like she wasn't collecting Franklin Mint Faberge eggs. There was never that. My mother, I remember as a child, collected Raggedy Ann memorabilia. Oh. Um, we had a Raggedy Ann uh, cookie jar. I, and, but I think it was like kind of a game also, because like then me and my sisters were like, always like on the, like, oh my god, look mom, like a Raggedy Ann, whatever the fuck. Um, she, she, it's not, and it must have just been something to keep us busy too, because yeah. now it's like not part of her personality at all. She doesn't give a fuck. It's more like. I don't know, like, oh, well, your Thea collected crosses, and look at all these beautiful crosses, or whatever, you know, stuff Fun. like that. Plus, Yard vampire moms. free home, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, this is so funny, because my aunt is is a hoarder. Um, like, she won't invite us into the house when we come visit. Um, I, I'm just awaiting the day that, sorry if you're listening to this, Mari, but my cousin Mari calls me and goes, Mom died, like, you have to come and help me clean out this house. Oh, um, no. But... Uh, it's that, interesting because to her, they're all practical. I, every holiday, I have to decorate the house and the outside with Fourth of July things and Memorial Day things and Labor Day yeah. things. Um, I mean, that's that's the the way hoarders. That's the way yeah. it happens. Oh, yeah. The practicality of like, well, what if I need this? I just saw um, a couple months ago Teresa Rebeck's new play. I need that with Danny DeVito, and it's about a hoarder. Wow, he's just constantly like, I need this, <laughs> like. I thought what was particularly interesting, at least for me, um, who's taken abnormal psych, is to go from a scene where Beverly is collecting people that she uses to going to collecting these absolutely useless little objects was really fun parallel storytelling. Yeah. Uh, none of the characters we see in this film are mothers outside of of the one we've already interacted with. What does it mean for for Beverly to be the only mother here? Because um, Dottie isn't, uh, Rosemary isn't. They might have kids, but we don't know that. Like, but we just have to sort of accept that there's just women in the world. Right. She she is the serial mother. She yeah. is the one person who has this like um, this power, this control, this you know and. I th- and I think that's a good important distinction um, because it kind of the terror that a mother can inflict on a community is truly unparalleled. Yeah, and that and that, <laughs> and that's like the natural instinct, right, of protection and like the right. links that the links a mother will go to, um, and and if they're a white woman and if they have an amount of money and a, you know certain status in the community, like it's just tenfold. And I think uh, John is really putting on display, like that power and, and and the reign of terror they can bring um and i also and i also think that like there is something that adds to beverly's judgment of these other people around her because the idea is that's drilled into women is that you are supposed to grow up you're supposed to get married and you're supposed to have kids we don't know if any of these other women have jobs either. right they might all be stay-at-home people but we do know that they do not seemingly have significant others uh, for the most part, and they do not have children. And therefore, 
there is something aberrant about them. Yeah. Whereas Beverly is the model citizen. She did she it all. She is a 2.5 children uh, married to him uh, in a heterosexual relationship. And she is, from all appearances on the outside, subservient to her, you know, male husband. So I think I think it also adds to that, like, judge, like fake judgment of, like, oh, well, I'm the superior. I'm the alpha. You are all betas yeah. to me because... Yeah. I've achieved the status that you've not been able to achieve in your own life. Well, speaking of our favorite beta boy, we then go to Eugene, who is working on Ralph Sterner's mouth. Ralph is in terrible pain during this procedure, and he claims that Eugene is making him feel pain on purpose. And so now I'm going to turn the tables. I need a little therapy from you all. On rewatch, I started to wonder if there was something about Eugene's profession, uh, maybe a shared sadism between him and Beverly that's unspoken and a foundation of their marriage. But for him as a man, it's acceptable. Uh, for her as a woman, it's not. Is is that on the page or am I just, you know, not liking dentists? Uh, well, I think for the most part, all dentists are sadists, in, in my personal opinion. Absolutely. Um, and that is a 100% true fact and you can look it up. But uh, the... This is the hardest scene for me to watch out of out of this movie. Out of I know you've talked about the gore and everything. I, I can handle fake gore because my brain always is just like it's not real. Oh. Uh, but watching somebody do oral surgery is uh, horrific to me. Wow. Watching that drill go into the tooth is just and so like literally this is the one scene and I was just like oh no. I feel like I was in like the Twilight Zone. I was like, did they not numb him? What's going on? <laughs> I literally was like, has the technology really changed since the 90s to now about, like, oral surgery? I was like, that man, I- I've had a significant amount of dental work, and I'm like, that's fine. I don't care. Not a big I, deal. I think we're also just basically supposed to read into Ralph Sterner as being kind of a shitty person. And so yes. I think it doesn't, you know, I think it's, for him, it's psychosomatic anyways, even if it is numb, that he's just like, oh, you're hurting me. You yeah, know? but I so. think, like, so, and in, in back to what you asked, David, like, and you've is Eugene enjoying giving pain? I don't get that sense. I I don't think he, I, I think number one you do hate dentists. I think number two he the dentist uh, role is it's a, such like a traditional like kind of milk toast Americana it type is. of job for like a man with a certain amount of money, right? But like it's kind of like fake doctor vibes, right? You're not a real doctor, you're a dentist. Whatever that whole conversation. Um, but and then also I think uh, John Waters dislikes the perverseness of like drilling in someone's mouth, you know. Um, and besides, we 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 find out later the only thing that Eugene is actually good at is sending a bill. Yeah, so it doesn't matter. Well, and I not to not to keep being like, oh, I read the draft of the script, but in the second draft of the script. Um, uh, Waters makes it very clear that Ralph screams every time the drill gets close to his mouth and it never goes in in the stage directions oh. of the script. Um, so so all, it is psychosomatic. It is psychosomatic. Wow. What a shame. Um, well, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm really, I, I expected to apologize to Louis for parts of this movie, but I didn't know I had to apologize to you, Gavin. I apologize. <laughs> it's, the, it's the only one. I, and it doesn't last very long. The so. um, police do come to ask Eugene about their suspicions of Beverly. They have found some books um, that she has read, and they think that that makes her guilty. And they ask eventually if she is mental. Um, I wanted to say that reading about serial killers doesn't make you a serial killer. Uh, I say that especially to offer you cover for the following. Do you have people in your life who are into true crime? Are either of you true crime heads? Is this where I'm about to learn something new about my friends? When I was younger, yes. In fact, I like distinctly remember borrowing my f- friend Tim's 
um, Encyclopedia of Serial Killers. And I think it was mostly for shock value. Sure. Uh, because as I've grown older, and I think we've discussed this on the Mixed Reviews a couple of times, I have a real tr- trouble with true crime because I think a lot of true crime centers the perpetrator and not the victim. Yeah. And for me, I'm always more curious about the victim because regardless of what happens, it, you know, it's like either this person, this real human being was taken out of the world and that's a tragedy or it's somebody who has now been left to live with this horrible thing that has happened and how do they go on with knowing that these horrible things have happened around them or to them and i think that's more fascinating to me than the psychology of the person who's committing the murder i I feel like we've had uh, especially you know since psychology has been more vogue in the mainstream since the 70s uh the i feel like we've had a billion of like let's analyze the like what's wrong with the person who did this and i'm like okay like and i'm sure we can learn more but uh i think we you know a lot of times we have a tendency to not center victims um in those stories and so i actually whenever anybody tells me they're like oh i listen to true crime podcasts i'm like i i I worry you know yeah i think like i'm not anti-true crime but like like all genre like there's ways to make it good and bad and i don't think it's like about like oh i love true crime it's like is the storytelling good like does this does this crime deserve like this storytelling or is it just like netflix pumping out another like doc for you know cheap, or easy a watch. S- six part ryan murphy Dahmer series you know yeah, yeah it's like uh, for me like the true crime that i enjoy listening to it's not about romanticizing like you know what happened but like the tragedy you know the people involved and and, and because this we shouldn't normalize you know like oh yeah, yeah like i i think um gypsy rose I I largely did not know or follow her story or what happened. And then I finally learned, like, I, I think I just like, read an article and I was like, God, that is fucking horrible. And I, I think about, like, the pain that she must have been in, like, literal physical pain for her entire childhood yeah. life. Like, it's, that's, that's fucking devastating. And, um... Murder is wrong, Joy. Murder is wrong, Joy. Uh, so yeah, I, I I don't know. It's 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 a, it's a tough one. I think. Um, yeah. I did. You guys watch? Um, is it American Crime on Netflix, where it's like the satire spoof of serial? No. Or, no. Or, I I think it's called American Crime. Uh, I could be getting it wrong, but literally, it's like a high school crime has happened and it's literally someone has spray painted dicks on cars yes um and it's hilarious it's very very good um i'll send you a link later you know the great news about being a listener is that the correct name of this and a link to it is already in the show notes so you don't have to wonder what we're doing it's already there wow the power of podcasting the power um, I think this is really interesting because, of course, you know, I had to study abnormal psych and um, I, I had a very close friend who taught at uh, Louis' alma mater, um, who also taught abnormal psych. And she would constantly say that the worst class you could ever teach in your entire life is abnormal psychology because it is a group of developing adolescents who come in, learn the first thing about sociopathy and then go to diagnose every single person in their life um, as being a sociopath. You, you, I, you, I mean, I think I think you see it online all the time i mean people are so quick to be like you know do you have autism and it's like okay like let's 
Relax. Let's not. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, everyone. You know a sociopath. There's someone in your life who right. has some of these qualities. But when it when it comes to the actual idea of someone who has crossed a line into criminal and and sort of beyond the pale behaviors, it's a very, very, very rare situation. And most of them are CEOs and uh, board members. So yeah. um, And it's about like who can get away with it, right? Yeah, and exactly. I think yeah. this, that's what this movie's about. Like this this woman can get away with it because she is walking around in church yeah. with the family. She's happy. Like, yeah. She's like, I dare you to ask me if I murdered. Yeah. You you think me, little housewife girly, did this? Please. Well, let's get to another murder then, Louie, because we are at the swap meet. Misty is distraught over Carl dumping her. Her mother is trying her best to make her feel better. Um, And he's there. He's there at the swap meet. This is the only thing going on in this suburb. And he comes with some other girl. In the script, she is listed as sex pot date. Um, It's not there for me, but maybe it is for other audiences. I mean, I mean, are you are you aware of of who? the actress no, playing her sorry yes. I, I did not she's the gr- she, she's one of uh, john waters girlies oh. yeah so this this is tracy lords and this is one of i think one of her fr- well no because crybaby comes before this but uh, uh tracy lords very famous porn star but oh. with the caveat of almost all of the porn that she made was prior to being the age of 18 and so it is now you know it's it it's shouldn't illegal. be seen and yeah. it's illegal and um and it's not a fun story. She was like literally like coerced into this life and whatnot. And, and on the set of Crybaby, they were constantly like basically trying to hide her from the FBI because the FBI wanted her over these, you know, the, and so it's, it's one of those things where it's like John Waters is Kathleen Turner describes John Waters as the nicest person you meet, but it, but he's very good at zeroing in on the thing that'll hurt you. And then if, but if he thinks too far, he will like apologize. And I, I think he also has that sort of um, uh, scalpel quality when it comes to these things. So like in casting Tracy Lords, this like well-known porn star or I, and but regardless of, of what actually happened in real life, like he is casting the sex pot girlfriend. He knows what attention that'll bring to the movie, but also like, she's not a bad actress. No, like I've seen her all, be bad honestly. in things. We talked about the Tommy knockers in our Stephen King episode, but the, but she like, so it's like such a double-edged sword for when John Waters cast Tracy Lords because she is, she is a, for all intents and purposes, she's not an original dreamlander, but she is a dreamlander, which is his stable of actors. And so like, yeah, it's, it's always fun to watch her pop up in John Waters stuff, but like you kind of, have a, a in the back of your brain previous connotation yeah. when it yeah, yeah there's like a light bulb like when i saw her come on i was like oh yeah like like i i had forgotten her yeah. name but I, I i immediately clocked her from you know crybaby and i was like oh yeah he's doing something he's saying something well, that, like carl is here with sex girly well that's like the at the end of the film the the woman wearing the white shoes is patty hearst patricia hearst right very famous and, and kathleen turner said um when they were shooting the scene with her hitting her with the phone, she was like, wow, she can really like take it. It's stage combat. It's really take it. Like, and she asked John Waters, she's like, does she have a history of stage combat? And John was like, no, she's just really experienced it. <laughs> and then <laughs> Kathleen Turner was like, oh, I feel terrible. Oh, no. like, Gooped. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Well, uh, here at the swap meet, Rosemary does go over to try to find her Fabergé egg, but instead ends up buying a fire poker after replacing the prices on it. So again, there's a tiny crime. What? Yeah. And what a fucking petty crime. It's literally $6 to $3. Yep. Like, 
Listen, uh, I do also like that in the script, the cost of the Fabergé egg increased dramatically. Um, it originally was priced at $8. Um, so that we were talking about, you know, 100 was that was a big change. So maybe somebody mm-hmm. actually told John what but these things But that's damaged cost. goods. I, it does have a chip in it. Oh, my God. Um, Beverly does take the poker uh, from uh, Rosemary and starts to stalk Carl with his new little chippy, eventually following them into the men's room. When she enters, uh, Carl has his back to her while he's using the urinal. She has to run into a stall to hide momentarily. Um, and th- in that stall, she sees uh, town pervert Marvin Pickles through a glory hole. He's excited to see her as a woman being there, but he rushes out of the room. Any thoughts on Marvin Pickles here? Marvin, Marvin Pickles is the most classic John Waters character. I, I feel like that archetype has has uh, been in the forefront of John Waters' brain since he was a child. I mean, li- lit- literally, like, even just him playing the flasher in the Hairspray yeah. musical. Like, it that is the, the type of, like, that perversity is, like so john waters bag yeah pervert 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 he loves he loves like this the archetype of a pervert and again he is saying here like why wouldn't we believe this man who's who you know witnessed or at least was saw her in the bathroom yeah, right and before i he witness yep. and <laughs> i don't but and it's don't. like well he likes a glory hole so we can't believe him right well he gets off of a running graffiti which is a is like a known sexual fetish but is not is not the sort of thing i expected to see in a movie that my father put on for me you know it's <laughs> it's, it's 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 that sort of john watersism that it, it's just it's interesting it's just kind of it's just interesting but he sniffs the jury's panties. Well, later. So. Later he will. Later he will. <laughs> um, once the coast is clear, Beverly, of course, sneaks up and runs Carl through with the poker, skewering some of his gore, which she then must dislodge from the poker. She goes to leave, but has to flush the urinal first because it's only proper he was using it. Yes. Yeah. Louis, Sanitary. Louis, here's the deal. You are famously not a spooky bitch. I don't know how far this goes. You have an understandable dislike of gore in films. Did this entry trigger you, or is there a gore to camp ratio that makes this okay yeah yeah there is definitely a gore to camp ratio that um is very uh uh delicate uh, but when i see it i'm like oh that's hilarious this movie definitely falls in that range gavin i'm trying to think of what was the frankenstein movie that i really loved that like it's like german or some shit or like an off from austria oh, oh no i i think I, I think the one that you really loved that was uh was it flesh for frankenstein the andy warhol mm-hmm yes yes and yeah like and like that movie has tons of crazy campy goriness um but it's not like um it's not scary you know yeah, it's not right. you know like I, i'm not like uh, so this wasn't scary and also like there is comedy here she fucking pulls it out and i was like did she get his spleen like is that his liver it's, <laughs> it's like his liver she, yeah like she's just like jiggling it around and she's like it's kind of funny she's like doing this horrible act but then she's like oh god like what the f-? like you know she she hates the mess that she's made i'll I'll talk about kathleen turner's least favorite death later because we haven't gotten to it yet but her favorite death is this because she just thought it was so funny that she would be so obsessed with the neatness of it that she would have to like take yeah. the liver physically off the the poker herself instead of being able to shake it off well and it's not unusual for someone after the thrill of completing an action 
to be revolted by what they've done. Anyone who's watched weird porn can address this. Um, well, I was just going to say that's the, the post nut clarity. Yeah, she's yeah. having post nut clarity. I mean, the, the, we I, there's like, this is documented well across all sociopathies, even people who just make phone calls and stuff. Anyone who's involved in criminal behavior, they'll say the moment after I did it is the worst I ever felt, but the moment I did it was the best I ever felt. Um, mm. It is that post nut clarity. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Gavin, for bringing up the level of discourse here. Um, and that's, that's what I'm here for. I, I really appreciate it. And I think Turner acts her ass off for it because she is giving us the thrill and she is giving us the disgust. What did y'all think about it? I even put in my notes. What did you Gavin think about this? If Louis hates it. Um, but what do you, what did you all think about sort of the, the dichotomy here? Oh, I think it's hilarious. And it's another one of those things where like, I just don't understand why Roger Ebert would fail to see the humor in this because like it's, it's God, I'm so, so glad I gave us a villain at the top of this. I just really yeah. glad that we can come back. <laughs> but to I, I, I mean, well, I mean, he's always, he's both, he can either be an angle or a devil, but, um, stupid Gavin. Oh but he, uh, I think, I just truly think like it's, it's so over the top. And, and even if it did happen in reality, you would think like, Oh, that's, funny like that's why would somebody do like what's wrong with them it's also just like she is not sad there is no sadness to be found in beverly like she she is uh perhaps not well adjusted but like sadness is certainly not one of the personalities that is living in her brain yeah well the body does get discovered the whole swap meet is in chaos but back at the booth rosemary notices some gore on beverly's shoe you got some doo-doo on your shoe um, a phrase that we say a lot in the Arnold household. Um, oh, wow. She also sees some on the end of the poker, which she doesn't mistake for poop, uh, can tell is blood. Marvin tells the police there was a lady in the bathroom, but no one believes her. Grayson does notice Misty in the crowd and his suspicions of Beverly deepen. Uh, the second murder of Carl could also be described as Beverly being protective of her children. This was someone who had broken her daughter's heart. What did you all think about this murder writ large? Can I just also say, I just remembered one of the kids says shit at the beginning of the movie. And she says, we don't use the brown word. Yeah, actually, Louis, you know, I don't like the brown word. Don't say that again. (laughs) It's fucking hilarious. The brown word. LOL. Um, Yeah, I don't know. It's funny. It's number one weird that like Misty, her whole thing is like she loves going to a swap meet. Like that's her thing. Swapping things. Um. But yeah, this is classic. You know, yeah. she, someone in her family has been wronged, and ergo, now that now they must die. They must like, die. Yeah. And 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 I do I do think there is that that brief. I think Ricky Lake's very good in that moment where she's like, "I didn't mean this." Yeah, like, yeah she's like, she's she's like, "You said you wanted him dead." It, like, it's a little criminal that the focus of the conversation really has to be Beverly, and we can't talk as much about Misty and Ricky Lake. But Ricky Lake is fantastic in this film. She's yeah. Uh, and, Ricky Lake is an undersun actor who, like, except outside of like this is Winterborn, which Lou and I have both seen. Um, the uh, I think you know she's one of those people that unfortunately like she she went a route in life and that's that's what her life became. Yeah. But I I've never thought she was bad in any of John Waters' films. Well, back at the Suffin home, Eugene discovers Beverly's stash of serial killer memorabilia, including a signed autograph from Richard Speck and a tape from Ted Bundy, t- uh, voiced by John Waters, um, telling her that she it's misses It's the best. Her. And I'm sorry. Like, I don't mean to interrupt, no, but Ted Bundy, like, the fact that he literally begins it with, Beverly, this is Ted Bundy. It's so cold and lonely here on Death Row. But in his, like, Baltimore accent, like, six days before my execution. 
It's lonely here on death row. It's amazing. Best director cameo. Yeah, it's funny because everything that I read about this was like, whoa, he had an unscripted thing. Yeah, they or uh, sorry, uncredited. Um, it doesn't need to be credited. Like this is no. like this is the most John Waters that John Waters ever was. <laughs> Just, just I, I want to just, I should open every conversation with like, hi, this is Gavin Mevius. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gavin, Gavin, I do that. So don't be, don't be me. Um, did you all, uh, did you recognize Speck? Because he's a little bit less of a known sociopath. I did yes. not know. Yeah. Okay. Gavin did. And well, that just tells me who the both of you are. Um, it was interesting that he was included. I literally said the words encyclopedia of serial yeah, killers well, earlier. <laughs> Uh, he often doesn't make his way to the references. There's a couple reasons. First, he dies really unceremoniously, and we hate that. We love a true crime who like gets what's coming to them. He died of a heart attack in prison in 1991. His murders were, were more substance-motivated than we like for a serial killer to be, in that he got really high one night and killed a bunch of people that night. Um, that doesn't make it better. It's it's still terrible, but it's not it's not Ted Bundy. You know, it's not like it's not right. It's not the same thing. But why he made it to my radar is he's actually a big figure um, in conversations about police and prison reform um, because a interviewer or sorry, a journalist sent a anonymous tape to the Illinois legislature and uh, screened it. And it was all this drug trade going on in the correctional facilities and eventually showed Speck giving oral sex to a man, which must be why he was on water's radar as well. Yeah. Yeah, I love that the the image of Speck in it is like a clearly photoshopped like beefcake body yes, with Richard not, Speck's head. He did not head, look like that, like... Louis. <laughs> I mean, it, there 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 is nothing better. I imagine like John Waters was like, "Hold on, serial killer who is sucking dick for drugs." <laughs> yeah, this like, is going that's... in every film I make from here on. <laughs> Correct. Um, the discovery makes an impact on Eugene, but it doesn't change him from being supportive of Beverly. Do you all think that that belief that in his wife is motivated by love or an expectation of what he should be as a father? No, I think it's just men not understanding the capabilities of women. Oh, yeah. wow. I, I, so that she wouldn't I'm, be possible. I'm going to defer to Louis on this one. I think that's, I think that's actually very true. I, I think, like that read. Um, I, you know, and it's not that I don't believe that he doesn't love her. I mean, I think there's some deluded part of him that truly does believe that he loves her, but I think there is an idea of like, this is the woman she is. And so therefore like, why would it possibly yeah. be this for him? Like it, the math ain't math. And he's like, Oh, that's kind of interesting that she has this stuff, but she is still my perfect little, you know, wife who can do no wrong. Like he cannot fathom a world where she is saying pussy cocksucker right. and, you know, and the even, brown word and the brown word um, or murdering, you know, like even not even though, but like he had sex with her. He knows what she's like. And yet he still thinks she is like oh, angelic. I mean, I, I, the brain is capable. Of two things can be true. Like yeah. she, she yeah. can be a wild animal in the sheets and still be Betty Crocker in the kitchen. You know, that's the that's the yeah. ticket. Well, we're going to get to the kitchen because we are going to talk about dinner. But first, there's a quick scene in the video store where the kids are just having a good time joking about these two murders and how Beverly might have done them. And how cool would that would that be? Um, that night, though, Beverly does bring in dinner. Uh, really important to note that the we get a timestamp here of 7.31 p.m. In every other script, uh, it's 6.31 p.m., which makes it one minute late of the last time we saw dinner, which I did think was trying to tell a story that maybe things are falling apart for Beverly. Um, 
We get some quick scenes with Rosemary Dottie where they're telling the police their suspicions. But Chip, back at home, brings up that he Scott thinks that she's the one who's doing it. Beverly dismisses him and steps away. She drives away from the home and the family is concerned that she's gone to murder Scotty. They head off the, immediately to Scotty's. The nonchalant way in which she's just like, I'll be right I back. have to go get something. <laughs> like, Yeah. That's, you know, that's writing, babe, okay? Yeah, yeah it was perfect. It, it, they sit there for the right amount of discomfort, discomfortable silence um, for us, the the audience, to be like, oh, something's happening. Like, something, something's more than that. Um, we, for a quick second, they have another friend. They have a girlfriend. Um, Birdie. Chip yeah. and Scotty. Yeah. She is giving very non-binary vibes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and like also stoner vibes. Um, I just thought that was very interesting. Like they don't have the the young women in this film. None of them are like hot cool girls. Right. Right. You know. Uh, the the closest we get is Tracy Lords, and she's right. kind of presented as like sex. You know, like yeah, she's just there for sex. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's like they're either delinquents or you know Ricky Lake, who's boy crazy. Know, boy crazy and like a uh, swap meeting and like i'm not saying ricky like isn't an attractive woman but she's not the conventional oh yeah you know yeah. like looking um young woman of the time and so i thought it was very very interesting you know we got misty and then um this other character who is like looks like jughead kind of um <laughs> that's interesting well, at 8.01, we get a timestamp that Beverly has arrived at a home. We cut to Scotty's bedroom where he puts on a pornography and begins to masturbate. The family arrives outside and the police, who have followed the family, all burst into Scotty's room. But Beverly isn't there, just a horny and embarrassed Scotty. What did you all think about? Did this kind of get you this sort of, um, it's kind of a cheat. You sort of think that Beverly's there because she's looking at a family having dinner. It seems like it's Scotty's house, but they're two completely separate locations. Well, it's it's good misdirection. Yeah, it truly is, and it's it's great editing the way it's cross cut between the two and whatnot. Because even after you were led into the fact that Beverly is not at the home of Scotty, that she's at the home of these kind of gross, rude people, um, the you're still cross cutting between because you still have Beverly's family thinking that she's there, and and just as an editor, like I think like it like it's edited so perfectly, just the match back and forth. Um, I do. Th- Oftentimes, every time I've seen this movie, I'm always just like, that's the way Scotty masturbates. Yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> that's what I thought. Also, I was like, I was like, the, the porn is very just big titted well, it, woman. It's it's not a real porn. That's the thing. It's, right. it's a Ch- Chesty LaRue movie, I, I believe, is the mm-hmm. the actress. Um yeah. And, and she is Chesty, honey. Chesty Morgan, sorry. Yes. It's a film from 1974 called Deadly Weapons. Um, and yeah, it's it's like a, it's like a kind of pre-John Waters. Well, actually, I guess like kind of contemporary of John Waters-y, like underground. Um, like B-movie. Like, 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 yeah, sexy B-movie. The thing that sets it apart is it's directed by a woman, Doris Wishman. Oh, oh well, we love that. Interesting. Um, I will say that the the stage directions or the scene directions give give a detailed analysis of what is happening on the film. So if you cannot see it, please, um, I'll link to the show notes this this second version of the script, and you can read about all the things that um, Chesty Morgan is doing with her bosoms because they are outlined <laughs> in detail in Water Script. Gorge. 
Um, but we actually know that Beverly is stalking the home of the Sterners. She watches them inside eating a chicken dinner very messily. We get the same flashback that we had for Dottie, uh, same effect that takes us to the flashback, except she is remembering birds that she saw earlier. And this connects to the fact that they are eating a chicken and it makes her murderous. Uh, this is incredible because it shows that she's really just unhinged and falling apart. Yeah. This feels like we're getting like closer and closer to the apex of like anything fucking goes. Yeah. You know, like no one is safe. Yeah. So uh, the Sterners joke at Eugene's expense and this steals Beverly's resolve. She hides upstairs in the closet waiting to be found. And then she stabs Betty Sterner with a pair of scissors. Ralph rushes upstairs and a chase between them ensues. Beverly finally succeeds in knocking an air conditioner out of the window and onto Ralph. He is now dead as well. There's also wow. a little, she, the rat that comes out. I was her. just going to say, she has an accomplice in this oh murder. Uh, that rat that, that attacks <laughs> Mrs. Turner, like Betty Turner. Like, yeah, that rat was also out to get her. Hey, I hilarious. think that rat should be studied by psychologists. The, the two of you, such New Yorkers. This was a mouse. We have mice up in the sur- suburbs. You all have rats <laughs> That thing in the was city. big. That Are you sure? Tiny. Oh my God, Gavin, rewatch I've, this I've, I've had mice in my apartment before and they are tiny. They fit right into a trap. You were just mad. mouse? I she, she does. Said she does say mouse. Um, okay. She says we have mice again, um, and uh, the mouse does. It, bite it doesn't her, change my say. thoughts about the psychology of that mouse. A, mou- a mouse Get will help, help you commit a, a crime. Have you never seen Nathan Lane in Mousetrap, for example? Yeah. Oh, um, I love Mousetrap. <laughs> that is a formative move oh, for no. me. VHS, baby. Oh my god, I loved that. Um, the murder of the Sterners is driven out of them having Eugene come to work on his day off and then making fun of them, fun of him uh, during dinner. Now all three family members have had minor annoyances in their lives addressed by Beverly. What do you all think about that? Like, did that make some sort of narrative sense to you to be a one, two, three? I, I think she's just like keeping track. Like, I, I think yeah. she's just like so calculating. Like, she, no slight is too small. And if it's not now, like you are on the list, don't worry. You are going to get yours. Yeah. I love an air conditioner falling on somebody. I mean, the best is Chidi Adagonye, but um, I kind of wish that it wouldn't have happened because there was this really nice storytelling that was happening. And then she went from hitting someone with her car to skewering someone with a fire poker to getting somebody with scissors. She was getting closer and closer and closer to her victims, which oh, y'all okay. actually happens with serial killers. They go for things that are that are means at length and then they shorten the length over and over again. I mean, this one though, and I, I not to not to defend her choice of murder, but like this one was an act it was of improvised. desperation it because was he improvised. was getting That's away, true. and there was no way she would have caught up to him. Uh, again, script of the episode, she, he actually gets the scissors and throws them back at her, um, <gasps> which was incredible. I I'm really glad that got cut. Uh, that would not have done well for me. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't want to see her like fighting. in danger. Yeah, um, <laughs> like that's not the vibe. Back at the Suffin home, the family comes home relieved that Beverly wasn't at Scotty's. Uh, She happily presents a bowl of strawberries and all is right in the world like nothing had ever happened. Yeah, idiots. (laughs) The next morning, things are a little bit different. They get ready to go to church and are followed by an endless cadre of police vehicles. Misty is mortified. How will I ever get a date? Chip excited. Uh, On the way, the family hears on the radio about the Sterner's deaths, and Beverly is the main suspect. She laughs it off, but her family is not convinced. 
Eugene asks if it's menopause, and I just wanted to take a little break. Why do we always assume that things that happen with women are related to their hormonal changes? Either puberty, when they develop reproductive capacity, pregnancy, when they are reproducing, and menopause, the end of reproductive capacity. What the fuck? Well, uh, David, don't you know that men don't have emotional swings? That's right. Because men oh, don't duh. have emotions. I forgot. So... So that's number one. Women clearly too emotional to even function. I don't know how a woman even ties her shoes in the morning. seems like that would be too upsetting for her. Um, Yeah, no, I mean, it's absolutely that. It's this literally what Louis was saying earlier. Like, he's a man-man brain, and he's like, like, my wife could never, unless... Oh, there's something weird going on with her body chemistry that has to do with her being a woman. <laughs> yeah, he's just dumb, 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 it's just, just dumb, 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 dumb behavior um, and misogynist, dumb, dumb behavior. Like, yeah. and, and again, you know, all the cards are on the table flipped up, you know, and it's all pointing to her and they're all just like, well, we didn't catch her last night killing Scotty. And even though there's a billion police cars here and they are announcing to the entire community that this is the bitch, they're like, no, I think actually, you know, it, mom, it's just, it's mom, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and right. if, and if it is mom, you know, like she, it, it's not something that she can control. This is, you know, this is hormones racing. Yeah. yeah. And, and everyone knows to the point that they drive up next to another car, the people recognize Beverly and they scream and drive away, um, which was like a credits or not a credits, a, a trailer shot. If there ever was yeah. one. Um, That's a very Adams family moment. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Love that. Yeah. Um, we then go to the church. All eyes are on the Sutphin family, both as they make their way in and as they're seated. Outside, the police finally receive confirmation that the evidence is a match for Beverly, and they receive notice to bust the bitch. Um, they come into the church, but during the prayer, Beverly sneezes, and the entire church goes into a panic. In the commotion, Chip and Birdie smuggle her out and drive her away. And, and once again, just the hypocrisy of, like, white America, whatnot. In, I mentioned earlier, the sermon is capital punishment in you. And literally the priest is like, murder's okay as long as it's legal. Yep. So, like... Yeah, and also, I mean, again, can we just talk about this writing? The sneeze sends it into a panic. And everyone's like, ah! Because they are all... They, they all know who is sitting with them. Right. This, this right. Ac- accused murderess. And... I don't know. It speaks to like kind of sometimes we're just we're kind of okay like in our discomfort of being around terrors and like violence. It's all just like next door, um, but like that's why we live in like a fucking flinchy America, right? Where it's like at, at any moment right? because because we love guns so much here. At have any moment, seen, have you seen that horrifying TikTok that's going around of the woman who like protects her house when her husband yes. goes away on a business yes. trip. Oh my God. Yeah. We'll link to that in the show notes as well, because by the time this episode comes out, the internet will have aged 600 years. Oh yeah. Um, but it's amazing. Not only will we have gone beyond that, everybody will be doing when it. When I've, yeah. so I, the- you know, I used to travel a lot for work. And so we would host these sort of like, what does it mean to travel for work? And I would be there to be like, how do you make a, a hard gate connection? Like that's my fucking contribution here. But my boss used to get up and say, yeah, you need to like barricade the door after you check in and check behind the shower curtain. And like, like the number of new staff who would approach me and be like, oh my God, am I going to be murdered on this trip? And I would have to say like, no, we are putting you up at the fucking JW. There's nobody <laughs> in your shower, babe. Yeah, like, calm it's down. fine. It's fine. But yeah, it, it, 
this is like really representative of like yeah we what we have accepted as a culture as like fine and normal and then like the one but now but now it's personal because now you're close to her and that's why they panic louis that is so brilliant that is so on point wow i'm such smart friends um (laughs) uh well, we then go to the video store because they have that is where they have chosen to hide her. Um, but they open up the shop and Mrs. Jensen is chomping, champing at the bit to get in. She is there to return Ghost Dad and rent Annie. She didn't rewind her film, though, and is rude to Chip for enforcing the rules to charge her an extra dollar to remind her film. Beverly watches it all in secret and leaves the video store. Seeing her gone, Chip and Bertie rush to follow her and Scotty spots them and follows the two of them. I think there's a very funny viewing today that Mrs. Jensen rented, returned, and praised a Bill Cosby film. Um, And that's deserving of murder. I I don't, you know, I don't know what else to say. Yeah, because I feel like back then it probably was like the joke of like, oh, this boring ass bitch who loves, you know, Bill Cosby, like America's dad. Right. But but like non-threatening black man, father, like that's, that's the other connotation of it. It's like, he's the black man that it was okay for for white people to love because his character was a doctor on his TV show and he had a family and whatnot and therefore non-threatening. Yeah. Yeah. There's layers. Yeah. The the hypocrisy continues as as time marches on. It's just like... But and and you see some of the things like this, and and not to keep going back to to Gavin's like ultimate thesis that is the essay of this conversation, but like is there a little bit of knowing that Waters had that like this guy actually isn't a good guy? There's something else going on here, and I'm gonna poke a little fun at that, babe. There had been rumors since the '70s. People like knew. People brought it up on fucking talk shows. He had a he had a thing in one of his acts about Spanish fly, like drugging women with Spanish fly. So like. It, it's one of those things where like people that were you know when the all the harvey weinstein stuff went down too people were like oh it was an open secret and and so it, it's sad that these things don't come to light sooner but like you know i'm sh- i'm sure john waters had not yeah not heard stuff like yeah. that you know i think that's just it, a particularly interesting reminder here in the year of our lord 2024 you know yeah well, we do follow Mrs. Jensen home and she puts on Annie and enjoys a lamb sandwich. Also asking her dog to lick her feet. Um, justified murder. Perverts. Uh, oh, it hurt. <laughs> Sorry. What? What was that guy? I said, I said perverts. Oh, okay. I, was, <laughs> like... I, I thought you felt yourself seen on screen and that it hurt the, no. what I was saying. And I, <laughs> I do not want that. Wanted to follow I up. am the antithesis of that. Um, Beverly enters the home. She's seen by Scotty, who is taken to the neighbor's garage roof to look in. Um, Beverly first grabs the butcher knife, but she reconsiders and Scotty is relieved. He actually thinks like, oh, she's not going to do it. But instead, she simply substitutes her murder weapon for the leg of lamb. She bludgeons Mrs. Jensen to death to the rhythm of tomorrow. Yeah. A plus. Uh, a plus scene. As somebody who has worked on television shows before that have had issues with music rights, um, I just want to point out that the um, rights owners to the song Tomorrow charged John Waters $60,000 to just to use the song based on reputation alone, wow. having not read the script, wow. but just knowing who John Waters is. Is that, that feels high to me. But That's very high. Okay. Um, worth for, for the use of one song, one needle drop of one song. Yes. Can I tell you though, worth every penny, worth every yeah. penny. Oh, absolutely. And, and water's new. Yeah. And what like, he was not, not going to pay for that. You know, it sells that's, the scene. That's crazy town though. Like <laughs> that's, that's, uh, I don't know how much RuPaul's paying for those needle drops in, <laughs> 
in the Lip Sync for Your Life, but like sixty. I mean, well, this is sixty thousand dollars in nineteen ninety four. Yeah, that's that's that, that's why you a million do not today. get those needle drops in Untucked. Wow. <laughs> wow. Um, well, I think by now we can all agree that the pretext of Beverly acting on behalf of her family is gone. Sure, Mrs. Jensen was rude to Chip, but now the urge to kill is just a compulsion, and there's joy in this kill. We have not seen Beverly look so happy mid-murder before. Yeah, I mean, there is like the little aspect of Chip to it, but I think it's again, she's like, this woman has done a wrong. And it's not about Chip, it's about she did not follow the rules right she did right. not rewind the thing and she's complaining about the um the system in place the system in place is not right. serving her and uh, i think the, the interesting thing is with beverly even when she is seemingly caught she's like i will work the system yeah and right if the system is not working you you can still work the system she's like yeah okay let's go to jury yeah, and that's I mean, and that goes back to the the joke that I was calling back to in the future earlier when after when she chases Chip and Chip gets into the car and she starts stabbing through the roof. She's like, "Wear your seatbelt." Yeah, it's the law. Yeah, and like and so like the in her brain exactly like the system is there. It's just not serving her. It's exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Because she sees it's Scotty. Scotty is um, watching her from the garage. She chases after him, chases him to his car, starts stabbing through the roof to say, wear your seatbelt. Um, almost protect. So the thing that she is saying is the thing a protective mother says. The action she is taking is not. Um, right. And again, the, the draft script I read has so many more of those. Every time she kills somebody, <laughs> she's saying something very motherly and protective about them um, while bludgeoning them to death with a leg of lamb. Um, they they start a car chase. It's very intense. Um, it is the best part of my notes because I didn't have to write anything. Two cars are chasing each other. Um, Beverly carjacks the van. There is that moment where her family sees her and she waves. Waves. It's so that great. That was an improv, <gasps> and Waters didn't even know it was in the film until the first screening of the movie when the audience laughed at it. And Incredible. he was like, she's a fucking genius. It's genius. Because it, it's exactly what your mom would do if she passed you. Yeah. Um, except she's got a job to do, which is to kill this young man. They chase each other to the Hammerjocks bar. Um, she's recognized at the entrance, and Beverly follows Scotty in, navigating the crowd until she finally confronts him on stage. She traps him by cutting a fly on a lighting rig, and then lights hairspray on fire to immolate him the crowd celebrates beverly vigorously as the family and police enter she is finally arrested and taking away as the crowd chants serial mom there is this perverse um aspect of this where like there's a community of people who love the gore the blood like oh it's actually kind of fucking cool that your mom is serial mom and like oh is that serial mom like uh, like and the celebrity that comes already and she's like well, I guess I am. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, yes. I suppose she I goes in. Yeah. Uh, the, I mean, that's it. She's she's playing into the celebrity, and she's only famous because she is a white woman. Like this is you change the race ethnicity on this. Like she, becomes a very different story. There, there's no way a guy would be like, "You're serial mom. Come on in." Um, and I I do think also by the way you pointing out like there is a kind of crowd that like feeds on this. I think at the same time like the people in the audience of that band probably did not think that this was like a real no. thing that was happening. I don't even think the band no. like in the world of the film think it's a real thing is happening because they contribute to right. it. Right, they like, spit they, Jack they, Daniels like, on the on the emulating course. Yeah, right, right. So I'm sure that they all think like this is a bit, 
like, and we're just going to go along with it. Um, but that being said, uh, this is the death I was talking about that Kathleen Turner hated doing. And she like said she begged John Waters to change the way he, she's like, I will stab him. I would rather stab him than set him on fire. And I think you can kind of see it in her face when she's doing the lighter to the to the um, hairspray. She does not look happy. No. Yeah. Um, we then get a time skip. We're five months forward. It's time for the trial of Beverly Sutphin. Um, some of the court attendees remark about having seen each other. These are the true crime girlies of the era. Um, and again, what a prophetic director to be able to know that these people would follow this stuff around. It would make it their entire personality would even drag their husbands along. Um, in court. Be- I mean, maybe one of the sickest things her children does in the movie is the, the scene where her her where chips on the phone and Selling this guy rights. comes over and he's like, your mom killed my brother. And he's like, hey, 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 like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about your brother. You're Scotty's brother. But like, have you signed away your rights? And the guy literally goes with like media or television. Or, yeah. Yeah. yeah, media or, te- yeah like, or print, print or TV. Print, yeah, yeah. Print, print or TV. And it's just like so like it it's so damning of who we are as a species it's this commodification of trauma um yeah that that true crime dabbles in that this the whole rights conversation travels in um but it but it is interesting that it's sort of interspersed throughout beverly it makes it it's probably great editing, Gavin, but it makes it hard to take yeah. notes for a podcast discussion. Um, <laughs> so just know that it's happening in the background. Because in court, Beverly's defense attorney is giving his opening statement. Beverly notices that juror number eight is wearing white shoes after Labor Day and writes a note to her attorney about it, which causes him to say that she's not guilty by reason of insanity. She yes. fires him and decides to defend herself. All the process around her is so irrelevant. Yeah. it's a, she, right. She's... It's none of this matters. Whatever this, ma- she's just like so focused on. Like, isn't there a moment where she's like telling a guy to like blow his nose? Like, she's like, yeah, yeah. Everything. This needs to be proper, and you know, she's like, because none of this matters because I'm gonna get myself out of this yep. anyway. Um, right. Yeah, but, it, but I do love not me defending a lawyer, but I do love the fact that like he's one of the few people in the movie that sees through the veil of what's happening. Yeah. That, that gets the like, no, this is fucked up. Like, <laughs> like, and like, and it's literally just her being like. Juror number eight's wearing she, white. She taps like, it over and over you know, and over again. <laughs> she writes uh, and she's like pointing at it like like he needs to stop the trial to be like, ma'am, you should change your shoes. And he's just like, it clicks for him like, oh shit, like yeah. she did it. Like we're not, yeah. we're not getting away with this. Like change tactics. That's funny. Uh, because a, a defense attorney is is there responsible to help their, their client get off. So it's possible he did have a defense that looks very yeah. similar to Beverly's own defense in a couple seconds. But you're yeah. Gavin, I I really, really like that that he was like, oh no, like we can't, we can't, we gotta talk about this. We gotta we gotta he, do He's here. like he's like one of the few like people that sort of exists on the outside of the movie of being like, what is going yeah. on here? Uh-huh. And, you know, but like in most films, that's reserved for like the the man on the highway and like body snatchers being like they're here and everybody being like oh, a crazy person. But he's literally an authority figure, so he's kind of like, what is going on? And she just immediately dispatches with him. Well, yeah, that she would have, you know, if, if well, different. I'm, I'm sure she probably more, thinks about stabbing him. More, yeah, more of a Victor Garber dispatch than a uh, any other sort of dispatch. Yeah. She, he is sent away. We cite some court reasons that she can defend herself. Fine. Um, every defendant that is called by the prosecutor, Beverly finds a way to dismiss or disarm. For Dottie, uh, she needles Dottie about her drinking, mouthing "fuck you." Beverly successfully <laughs> goads her into being found in contempt of court. 
Um, not hard to do. Judges, no. depending on the judge, they will put you in contempt real fast. Um, and Dottie got there. Luan, Lu, Luann Hodges is next. She's high as a kite, so Beverly only needs to smile at the jury to get sort of her credibility washed away. Detective Grayson is next. And in partnership with the sanitation workers that she befriended earlier, Beverly asks about the reading materials in his trash and reveals that she found a magazine titled Chicks with Dicks and uses that to prove what a person reads isn't a sign of their character. Yeah. And it's, it's so interesting. Like the way he's like, Oh, that's trespassing. Like, right. You know? Um, yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't fully deny it. Does he? No, no. I mean, but, and, and, but it's also one of those things where it's just like the, the like shame of the veneer of society being like, (gasps) you know, like, Oh, perverse. One, and you can tell that the audience or the, the observers are on Beverly's side here. And so that's sort of swaying the jury. Um, next up is Rosemary Ackerman. Beverly is able to spin several parts of circumstantial evidence to cast suspicion on Rosemary being the perpetrator herself. Like this is goddamn Phoenix, right? Um, finally solidifying her guilt by es- exposing that she doesn't recycle. Um, the gas, the that, collective that, gas. That does it. I, I have wondered this for years. Do you think Rosemary had a trial following this? I would assume she has <laughs> to. Well, I don't know. After after the end of this film, I assume we're going right. back to the jury. You know? um, next up is Detective Pike. Just as he's about to hand a photo to of the immolated um, Scotty to the jury, everyone becomes starstruck by the entrance of Suzanne Summers. Is this our time to talk about my girl Suzanne and her thigh master love? It's crazy because, like, in this universe, is Suzanne Summers a movie star? It seems like it's a limited TV series, Louis. Oh, yes. Okay. yes. Oh, okay. And okay. this is the the like mental connections my brain has been making with May December because yes, 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 the, yes, yes, yes. There's that idea. This is one of the only times in the trial where she really gets off due to Deus Ex Machina because I think if if perhaps the jury had seen those photos of poor immolated Scotty, like then maybe. Her defense would have fallen apart, and she really sort of lucks out with the introduction of Suzanne Summers into the film. But once again, that goes back to that idea of like white woman celebrity, where you know, like literally, the judge is like, "I loved you on Three's Company." Yes, like, yeah, yeah. Um, I just want. But good for Suzanne Summers for agreeing to do this. Listen, it's wild. Well, and they they clearly had to find somebody who had that sort of star power. Um, right. And Valerie Bertinelli was busy. Well, drop in the chat. The original uh, written name here. Suddenly, a buzz starts in the courtroom, and all heads turn to the back of the spectator session when it's real life star Farrah Fawcett. Wow incredible imagine she was getting she was getting her hair washed that day my goodness right uh and then for that the judge says i loved you in the burning bed weird no not the burning bed (laughs) a movie about spousal abuse no yeah yeah. my mom still talks about the burning bed honestly i will uh, just to give you a little peek into my mom's psyche my mom is always just like Farrah Fawcett, she was so good in The Burning Bed. And I was like, that was a TV movie that happened 40 years ago, Mom. And, you gotta let it go. And what a sacrifice that instead we get Three's Company, uh, because it's Suzanne I, uh, Summer. <laughs> when I worked in the news uh, a billion years ago, uh, which, thank God I don't, and please pray for me, I never have to go back there, um, I cut Farrah Fawcett's obituary. And most people don't realize this. You uh, do obituaries uh, months, sometimes years before somebody dies. So much so that I also cut Michael Douglas's obituary oh, and he's still with us. Uh, but uh, most people don't 
remember Farrah Fawcett died on the same day that Michael Jackson died. Yeah. So by 3 p.m. that night, my obituary was no longer running and I was living. Oh my God. <laughs> I was like, I did that. I did the Charlie's Angels transition in her obituary. Wow, Gavin. No one no one has been more victimized by Michael Jackson in the entire world than you, Gavin. I know. Where's my trial? <laughs> Well, last but not least, we get Marvin Pickles up to the stage. He is an eyewitness to seeing her at the scene of one of the crimes. But Beverly seduces Marvin to the point that he recants his entire story and accuses the prosecution of witness tampering. The drums MVP of the scene. The drums are doing all the work. No, I was saying she's literally just wafting her legs. I don't know. She's like an X-Man, just like wafting her pheromones to like <laughs> him. And he's like, I, David, you have access to an earlier version of the script, so I can't cooperate this. But based on this interview that I read with her, she claimed she came up with this idea. She That the script just said like, he could see underneath the table. like But the like idea of like moving vigorously, like putting, moving her legs back and forth. And the interviewer was like, oh, well, had you seen Basic Instinct? And she's like, no, she's like, no, I, I didn't even know. She's like, I had not seen Sharon Stone's picture at that point. The only Sharon thing in the script Stone's is picture. that she inches her skirt up a little bit to expose her uh, leg. Uh, this see? is so. Yeah. So she did come up. Wow. With John Waters. Her. How fucking reserved. dude. <laughs> like, yeah. Not what I expected of you, sir. Uh, but well done, Kathleen Turner, because this it's it's very sexy. <laughs> Yeah, it's in her face. I think that's what truly makes it sexy. Like, I mean, obviously the idea is him staring at her genitals, but the pure joy she's experiencing while doing this, while she, it, it goes back to what you were saying, David, about the idea that, like, you coerce these people into doing jobs for you. And that's his function is to get yeah. her off for murder. And so she's enjoying the, the control that she is placing over him in that moment. We then get closing remarks and Beverly tells the jury she's normal. They haven't proved anything and asks for their courage to find her innocent. The next day or two days, sorry, two days later, the jury returns and the forewoman announces that they have found Beverly not guilty. The family suddenly realizes that this means she has to come home with them. And they are all a little terrified about that. We find the defendant not guilty of all charges. What should I do? I don't know. Bring her home, I guess. No more violence. No more violence. You think she'll like me? Just be nice to her and try. Try not to get on her nerves. Not only, like, it's not like I killed one person and got away with it. She killed a cadre of people, yeah. like... Right. And, I and, mean, Ricky Ricky Lake has her new boyfriend who she's immediately like, just don't do anything yeah, to piss don't her, do anything off. To piss like, her off. <laughs> um, and Birdie, poor Birdie, who's been traumatized by finally seeing oh, actual gore, God. is just saying, no yeah. more violence, no more violence. Poor Birdie. I, I, I do want to... Is Birdie the friend? Yeah. Uh, Ch- Chip's yeah, girlfriend say, is how I read Birdie, but... Interesting. Well, I was going to say, 
uh, you know, his uh, Chip's possibly NB friend. Like, I also love that we didn't even talk about it during the court trial. She's like holding a picture of Gandhi. Yes. Like, <laughs> well, and you have to you have to pause and freeze frame it to see that flyer she's handing out is end the violence. She has become like this weird pacifist after being this sort of like alt character yeah, in the right. background, like a like a proto Daria, I suppose. I mean, I do think that's one of the most poignant moments in the movie when she sees the body and she sees blood and she says to Chip, like, it was brown. It's not like in the yeah. movies. And I was like, I think that's John Waters being, you know, because there's been conservatives love to tell you that movies create psychos. You know, that's the uh, that's why that great line in Scream when it's like movies don't create psychos. They just make them more creative. And uh, the... <laughs> I, I think that John Waters has always been against that idea that it's it's like, you know, it's not the the stimulus that's coming from the entertainment. But w- w- I, I I don't know. I, I kind of love that character arc, but I yeah. think that it's so extreme by the end. Um, in the hallway, Beverly follows after juror number eight, who is on the phone. Beverly hangs up the call and tells her that she cannot wear white shoes after Labor Day. Juror number eight is defensive, but it's too late. Beverly bludgeons her to death with a payphone receiver. And to me, this is one of Waters' biggest thesis of the film. You can have a sociopath who talks their way out of consequences, but it only emboldens them and doesn't change them. We, the three of us, can admire Beverly for the queer camp she brings to the world but her crimes are heinous and she should have been felt found guilty on all on all charges yeah i think and at the end you know when she's uh you know like it's it's campy and funny with the labor day thing and like but then like you know like you said she's emboldened she's not changed why would she and she's certainly not like woof i got away with it time to like never go back to my normal life you know and so in that moment when she yells at suzanne summers because she's on the wrong side to take the picture I think everyone kind of is like in shock of like, oh, this isn't just campy fun. This is actual real life, like right. horrible murderousness stuff, and which kind of like, I don't think Gypsy Rose is a bad person. I'm not saying that. But like, I think even she's like, you guys, I had to kill someone. Yeah. Like, it's not right. just like can't be fun like th- there is actual well, that's, like carnage that's the idea that joy behar had to be reminded that murder is bad yes. you yeah you know like yeah. that's um i i will say on the reverse side of what you're saying louis when juror number eight says but fashion has changed yeah and beverly says no it hasn't beverly is correct <laughs> i, I, I mean, do yeah. all- I do also like that for the purpose of this podcast, she says, didn't your mother ever tell you that you can't wear white after Labor Day? Because yes. again, that's how yeah. this knowledge is to be passed down. Correct. Yeah. And and yeah, the, it, but it's just like those ideas, like you cannot change someone who is like set on like, you know, this is the way life works. And she her life right. is like structured. There, mm. there is the system. And that system extends to how you behave, how you dress, how you act, how you interact with other people. Um those are just the rules of the game. And, yeah. and she's like, if you can't fucking play with the rules, like you have to go. Yeah. That's gotta go. It is. Well, after the great line with Suzanne Summers, uh, we do get a freeze frame on Beverly Sutphin. Um, and it says Beverly Sutphin refused to cooperate with the making of this film. Fade out. Daybreak plays over the credits. Wow. Um, <laughs> Daybreak, by the way, is because going back to that idea that John Waters is 
one of the nicest people you'll ever meet, but is very good at like zeroing in on the thing you hate. He asked uh, Kathleen Turner what was a type of music that she hated um, going into the filming of the movie. And she was like, I hate Barry Manilow. Wow. And so he makes her fucking sing it in the movie. Wow. Not a She's fan like, of That's low. just who he is. Wow. I love that. Um, wow, we are we are at the end of a very productive and wonderful conversation. Louis Gavin, was there anything we didn't get to talk about when it came to Beverly or the film Serial Mom by John Waters? I mean, you know, we talked a little bit about you know what happens next, right? Like what 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 fate awaits Beverly in this moment where everyone's kind of like arched eyebrows. Um, like, did they make that movie with Suzanne Summers? Did she go back home? Like, you know, did, somehow, like, I don't know how fucking the law works. But, like, they rearrest her. Like, there's literally a body over there, like, <laughs> right. in the corner. Yeah. Um, was that, like, you know, is there an end or a limitation to, um, you know, the insanity where people are like, oh, we, we actually don't have to listen to this white woman and her, like, stupid, you know, shit. Um, lock her up. Um, or, you know. Does life march on? Does she, you know, we do we continue uh, um, giving cover for um, horrible people and, and and we're just like living in this discomfort? Um, I mean, I, I think the movie definitely like leans towards we continue to give cover, the cover to the to the horrible people. I think, you know, I, I, I don't dare say it's a pessimistic film. But I do think there is that quality to it that where like John, you know, there's a lot of John Waters being like, look at this reality mm-hmm. and like, look at yeah. how not far for every silly thing I'm showing you. Look how not far off we are from it. And, you know, so like I, you know, I, I don't want to be like, it's a downer of an ending. It's a great fucking ending. It's exact. Yeah. It ends exactly where it should end. Yeah. But. I think it does leave you with a slight, and maybe that's you know not to not to bring him up for the four hundredth time. Maybe that's what Ebert was picking mm. up on the discomfort that it made him feel that it left him yeah. with the, the idea of like, oh, the, you know, this this is not the end. Right. I think that's probably why the movie was such a bomb. Like yeah. the discomfort. She, Kath, Kathleen Turner said it played in more theaters in Germany than it played in theaters. Wow! In the US. Wow! That's wild. But I think that, yeah, like those movie, these movies that are like so uncomfortable and like are, the mirror, you know, is a little bit too scary to look at. Yeah. Um, people don't like that. Um, it's the reason why I think queer people don't like all of our shows that were the show us and like the not best light of like, oh, that gay is so annoying. I'm like, yeah, baby, because it's you. Because it's us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, uh, there's, there's a movie that came out this past year and you can feel free to cut this, David, if you want, uh, but called Rotting in the Sun. And one of the main characters in it is, um, I can't think of the guy's name, but he's an actual influencer and he plays himself in the movie and Jordan Firstman. And he's like the the worst version of himself ever. Right. And I was just like, I've met this guy. Like, I know, like some of the things he says, I'm like, ah, ah. Oh, (laughs) and and here's the deal is I think that one of the things that makes it hard to watch all this stuff is that we are a hair's breadth away from being it ourselves. And sometimes there's conscious things that stop us from being that, but on a day-to-day basis, and this is one thing that will really fuck you up. So if you're not in a mentally healthy place, skip ahead 90 seconds. But why don't you kill someone every day is, is (laughs) if you really think about that, it could, that is a really, really hard thing to deal with. Um, And if you choose to go into psychology and work with sociopaths, there's a reason that there's burnout in our field because it's, it's hard to have these kind of conversations without 
looking in her and being like, wow, what the fuck? Why aren't I like this? Um, I, of course, was immune because I'm a narcissist. So uh, sure, I was yeah. fine. Yeah, of course. Not, <laughs> naturally. Why do, we, why do we have podcasts? I know, right? Like, <laughs> wow. Wow. Uh, clocked us there, Gavin. Um, so we're left with just one question, which is, is Beverly Suffin our mother? Gavin, I'll start with you. I mean, are we talking like our real mother or like I've listened to every episode of this show so far. And yet I'm still always like when we get to this question, I'm like, what do we mean? When, you, when, you, consider, <laughs> what we... when you consider mothers or mother figures in your life or how this character was represented, what are the similarities you see? Or is there sort of a surrogacy that Beverly takes for you when you think about motherhood in your world? Well, then I think the short answer is yes. Yeah. She's absolutely, she is mother. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I. I think she is my mother, like obviously (laughs) an extreme version, but like I, you know, for all my struggles of like coming out and living my truth or whatever, I never was worried about like being abandoned or like shunned. And this is just um, like a protective, you know, uh, play by the rules mom who is, you know, has lost empathy or like, you know, obviously is a sociopath. Um, so, yeah, I think if anyone has had a protective mother who, you know, yelled at the teacher for being too mean to you or was. Yeah. Yeah, that's who Beverly is. Yeah, she's yeah. she's a mother who wants to be protective and has unconditional love. But there's just things you don't do around her. And I think there is a a synergy there with I, at least how I look at uh, mother figures in my life. Like, I know that I will be loved and accepted, but I, I can't bring up Morning Joe on MSNBC. Um, like, that that's just the living end, right? There's, there's that thing that exists in all of these folks' lives. Right. Or, like, I remember being, like, in middle school and wanting to, like, wear baggy jeans. And my mom would be like, absolutely not. You're not wearing that. That looks fucking crazy. You have to wear a tie to church, don't you? Like... There are aspects yeah. of this, like no, what do you you know you cannot wear that to this. Like right. there are aspects of all of this, like that are classic um, things. So yeah, I would say she's my mom. Yeah. I, and let me tell you, I grew up in a household where there was a lot of swearing. People sweared fr- very freely. The first time I said fuck in front of my mother. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, does your mom like the brown word? <laughs> I don't think so. Wow. I don't. She she doesn't use it. Hmm. So <laughs> another another phrase that's uttered uh, quite a lot here in the Arnold household. Anytime we say <laughs> shit, <laughs> brown word. Um, Gavin and Louis, this has been an absolute blast. Such a dream for me to be able to have you all on. Aww. We know that the headquarters for the mixed reviews is at four two one five Pussy Way, but where can folks find you online? David, this call is being traced by the police this very minute. <laughs> cocksuckers, cocksuckers, give your right. online handles. I'm at cocksucker Brooklyn. <laughs> uh, no, don't so, give out your real one, Louis. I know. God, <laughs> don't find me. Uh, no, but you can find the mixed reviews everywhere. We are all the places. Um, we're on Twitter at the mixed reviews, on Facebook, on Instagram at the underscore mix underscore reviews. You can listen to the podcast on literally all the places. Um, my personal Twitter is uh, Louis G. Rendon. That's L-O-U-I-E-G-R-E-N-D-O-N. Gavin has absconded from um, Twitter because she's too cool for school now. Um, if you interact with if you interact with the Mixed Reviews Twitter account, you can sometimes grab Gavin's attention. I just want everyone oh, yeah, to be I mean, aware it's, of that. It's, that's basically me. Um, the, which is so funny because then I'm like texting Louis like people are really upset about the poll. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, uh, but uh, the because uh, Louis does the poll and so is uh, but uh, 
uh, I guess uh, I just recently guessed it on uh, our good friend Morgan's podcast as well. And I, I reluctantly at the end was like, I guess if you do want to find me, you can always find me on Instagram at at Gavin, Gavin Mev. And that's G-A-V-I-N-M-E-V. But I don't know why you want to do that because it's very much a personal account. Gavin, so. sell that guest spot, though. What's the podcast? Oh, it's uh, the female film gaze, uh, which uh, Louis was actually the very first guest on. And what a great guest, by the way. Louis Thank talked you. about Monsoon Wedding, and I, I loved that episode. And I've really enjoyed every subsequent episode since then, which doesn't always happen with a podcast. Sometimes there's a huge drop of quality between the first. But Morgan is like a, a very good host and, yeah. and has some great really well thought out guests yeah and i i love talk morgan's such a calming presence yes um, but she but she has so much like, insight and like sharp takes um so yeah i i didn't know i was gonna be the first guest i was just you know lolling around um but yeah you should you should check out her show and then and check out our show um, yeah. yes ha- it, just to bring it back to us because we're narcissists check out the mixed reviews like like you said david we've been doing it for seven years almost seven years and like yeah it's i think it's my long i've been involved in four or five major podcasts and this i think is the longest running of them all and i think i mean clearly the one i'm most proud of and uh, i mean louis owns 70 percent of that company so. <laughs> We we are filming or not filming. We're recording um our uh 2023 wrap up in two days. So two days from now. Uh, that will be our latest episode. When you guys hear this episode, we'll we'll have that locked and loaded, and ready to go. So hopefully, we'll see you there. Awesome. Well, thank you both again so very much. As for me, I've been your host, David Arnold. You can find me online almost anywhere as DMUMA. That's D-M-U-M-A. And if for some reason you want more of me, you can join me and my co-host, Franklin Mint Collector Derek, as we talk about weird, genre-defying, and high-concept episodes of TV on Gimmicks, available at GimmicksPod on Twitter and Instagram. Gavin has been on a couple episodes, including Batman the Animated Series and the Quantum Leap episode um, that you know was one of my favorites, but uh, maybe not one of everyone's favorites in the whole world I, f- I felt so bad at the end of that episode being like i made you watch this I, and i love quantum leap so no shade but i was like i made you watch this shitty shitty episode of quantum leap derek <laughs> but i and also i do want to mention right before you do finish signing off we are also part of the glitter jaw queer podcast collective which this show is a part of gimmicks is a part of and we are so lucky and grateful that you guys decided uh to to allow us to come in and join the ride because louie and i've always sort of been looking for a home for our show besides uh podcasting can be kind of a lonely world out there and um it all depends i guess on the type of show and it's nice to have like this this uh chosen family oh my god oh my god the the house is large on pussy willow uh lanes my heart grew three sizes that day my goodness uh, well, as for this podcast, it is part of the Glitter Jaw Query Podcast Collective. But Are You My Mother is also on social media at My Mother Pod. And you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to reach out with comments, feedback, or you're interested in joining as a guest, you can email the podcast at areyoumymotherpod at gmail.com. See you next episode as we keep asking the question, are you my mother? Are those pussy willows? <laughs>